You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Okay, Jad, what's coming? Double homicide, one male, one female. Killer's male, white 40s. Set up a perimeter and tell them we're on route. I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks. Give the man his hand. The future can be seen. All we have to run on are the images that they produce. We see what they see. There hasn't been a murder in six years. There's nothing wrong with the system. It is perfect. I agree. Murder can be stopped. Tell me exactly what it is you're looking for. Flaws. You ever get any false positives? We are arresting individuals who have broken no law. But they will. The fact that you prevent it from happening doesn't change the fact that it was going to happen. The system can't be wrong. Run! Wait! you say something to you? No. You're in a lot of trouble, John. I have a warrant in my pocket that says murder. Don't run. You don't have to chase me. From 20th Century Fox. He set me up. He set me up. And DreamWorks Pictures. Who's the victim? I've never heard of him. But I'm supposed to kill him in less than 36 hours. He's gonna get together. Tom Cruise. I need your help. Keep contain information. I need to know how to get at it. In a Steven Spielberg film. I have to know. I have to find out what happened in my life. You tell me. Who was it? Set this up. I don't know. How about now? On June 21st, everybody runs. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Tim Luz. Hello. Thanks for having us on. Also joining us is Ms. Corinne Luz. Hi. Thanks for having us on. We conclude the second part of our conversation about Philip K. Dick adaptations with a conversation about Minority Report. Believe it or not, but this is the first time we've directly discussed a film by Steven Spielberg on the show. Released in 2002, the film stars Tom Cruise as John Anderton, the chief of the country's first pre-crime division, where he and his team arrest people before they commit the crimes prognosticated by a trio of psychics. When the psychics pick him as the perpetrator of an impending murder, Anderton begins to question the validity of the pre-crime system. Of course, we're going to be getting into spoilers galore on this episode, so if you haven't seen the film before, you have been warned. I highly recommend this movie. So, Tim, when was the first time you saw Minority Report, and what did you think? I actually saw this on opening night. That was the period where I was seeing pretty much everything in the movies as much as possible. I really enjoyed it. I remember coming after AI, I was thinking it was really cool that Spielberg seemed to be doing this hard turn into real science fiction, very almost very literate science fiction. And I was kind of hoping he'd continue that. We have to wait a few more movies until he got back to War of the Worlds for him to continue in that vein. I remember, like Total Recall, I thought the movie did a great job of mixing exciting action scenes with a decent enough examination of Philip K. Dick's philosophical and intellectual ideas. It was a nice few of the two. And I especially like how it merges sort of the paranoia of Dick's writing with the paranoia of classic film noir and especially the wrongfully accused Man on the Run movies, uh, particularly Hitchcock. And there's a couple direct homages I noticed in this movie that uh, definitely amused me. And how about you, Corinne? I don't have as glorious an anecdote as Tim does. As usual, I'm not quite certain when I saw it. I probably caught this one after it came out on DVD, but I do remember being very struck by the look of it. It was unlike anything I'd seen. 
definitely a different turn as, as far as the look and feel for Spielberg. But now, my God, I see this blue washed out kind of look so much. It drives me a little crazy. It does. And this was the first time I saw that blue and yellow. And um, I think I came to AI slightly after Minority Report. It's the same sort of look. It's it's just uh, this gritty future past look. I remember after Saving Private Ryan, where he really went heavy into the desaturated look, it came up quite a bit for some of his movies after that, that uh, sort of bleach bypass thing where the lighting's a little blown out, the colors are desaturated. I think it really fits here. It gives it this kind of futuristic film noir look, look that I really appreciate. The blown out lighting, and we'll talk about one scene in particular, really reminds me of what um, Martin Scorsese and then Spike Lee were doing. This harsh overhead lighting where it almost looks like you're being interrogated in a police station, but it's supposed to be more of a, you know, hey, we're in the back room of this place. And it just is very striking to see some of that lighting. It also reminded me a bit of the J.J. Uh, Abrams sort of lens flare effect where so much light is coming into the camera. So much lens flare. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that was really getting me this last time. I was like, I don't remember this much lens flare. But then watching this and then watching the remake of uh, Total Recall 2012, oh, my God, lens flare just so much. I was like, please stop it. My eyes can't handle it. And in that film in particular, I just thought, oh, this is so kind of colorless and bland where here I think the effect actually really works to serve the story. I also noticed one other interesting thing. This technique you used a lot in Private Ryan to kind of imply chaos during that fight scene in the um, automobile factory where there's these actual streaks going across the screen to the point where it's almost hard to see what's happening, particularly in the fight that he's having with Whitwer on the catwalk. Things like that that kind of enhance the chaos of scenes I really quite like. There's a ton of that, and there's a ton of product placement in this film to the point where I was distracted by that. So, so much product placement, which fits in with a lot of what Dick had going on. It, it was all about corporatization and how it was uh, putting a stranglehold on humans. So to be kind of bombarded by all of these commercials fit that. I almost feel like it's almost subversive, too, in that, yes, it's product placement, but there's so much of it, and it's so aggressive, it actually becomes grating, which is kind of the point. The idea that you're so overloaded that this stuff just eventually becomes white noise. Which is pretty much what we're experiencing now in um, all media. (laughs) (laughs) I like the effect that they use before the credits even start, where it's this water effect, and it really kind of ties into the whole idea of the precogs living in this water existence where apparently they can breathe underwater or whatever this amniotic fluid is that they're in. I think the script referred to it as milk. Nutrient uh, milk, I believe. Yeah, it and, and it it is very womb-like and <laughs> there's water all over this movie, just everywhere. Well, I think it's, of course, very smart that we set this thing up to have the crime before we get into the John Anderson. Anderton's story, and that we see him at work, we see what a pre-crime is, and we experience this as an audience to see, okay, this is what crime is like in the future, and this whole thing where poor Ari Gross is getting um, getting fingered for this crime where he's going to kill his wife and his wife's lover. I think it's a really smart opening for this, so then we can see how things are being subverted as we go along. It gives us the pre-crime methodology laid out very cleanly. It's very suspenseful. And we also get to see what kind of a cop Anderton is, his ability to pick out little details and think on his feet and be also, of course, very athletic and run around and, you know, fight the... Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) 
I forgot until midway through the film when he says, everybody runs. And I was like, I think that was on the poster. Yes. It was. That was the tagline. But it's weird because Ari Gross doesn't run. I think Tom Cruise, he he runs. And we know that he runs. He runs in everything. Yeah, it's Tom Cruise runs in every movie. I always think of The Firm. That was kind of their their big signature shot was him running down the street doing his <laughs> thing. It does, <laughs> it does make me wonder if his publicist was like, you're really, really graceful, beautiful runner. Put it in your claws for every movie. You must run. <laughs> I think the only film I can think of where he doesn't run is Tropic Thunder. I hate to say it, but also the second half of Born on the Fourth of July. And we also get Colin Farrell here as, is this what we call a Mary Sue? I can't remember. He's definitely the character that they bring in in order to explain how everything works in this weird way that we do that. And I, I have chafed against that so much like i talk about sony movies where we don't have that character and i appreciate when we don't have that character and here we have this guy and it's like okay we are laying this out very clearly for mr Whitwer so that he can understand this and also so maybe the audience can understand it as well i do have a problem with that trope I don't like a movie to talk down to me. I want to really engage with it and have some give and take. And having that let me unroll this whole world for you right now in the most common of languages, I feel like it's really patronizing. I do appreciate, though, that he asks a lot of the questions the audience would ask. Uh, why don't the precogs stop other crimes? I mean, isn't there a legal, a weird legal morass area here, a weird gray area? Also, I like that he also serves as the red herring for the whole thing, mm. too. We're set up to think that he's the criminal mastermind setting up this conspiracy, and of course he's not. I don't know if his turn late in the movie totally works for me, but... The one thing I do enjoy about his character is that he's an example of how the outside of pre-crime population views the precogs. Yeah, we don't really realize until there's a commercial that breaks up the first segment and the rest of the movie proper. People don't necessarily know all of the ins and outs of pre-crime. They don't know what happens inside of that chamber. Um, I know Spielberg on the extras for the Blu-ray was like, you know, these people aren't being interviewed by Barbara Walters' daughter or anything. They are secret. They are the best kept secret to this whole pre-crime idea. Imagine a world without murder. I lost my best friend. I lost my aunt. I lost my dad. I lost my father. I lost my wife. Just six years ago, the homicide rate in this country had reached epidemic proportions. It seemed that only a miracle could stop the bloodshed. But instead of one miracle, we were given three. The precognitives. Within just one month under the pre-crime program, the murder rate in the District of Columbia was reduced 90%. They were going to be waiting for me in the car. He was going to rape me. I was going to be stabbed. Right here. Within a year, pre-crime effectively stopped murder in our nation's capital. In the six years we've been conducting our little experiment, there hasn't been a single murder. And now pre-crime can work for you. We want to make absolutely certain that every American can bank on the utter infallibility of this system. And to ensure that what keeps us safe will also keep us free. Pre-crime, it works. It works. Works. It works. It works. It works. It works. On Tuesday, April 22nd, vote yes on the National Pre-Crime Initiative. 
I don't know if we want to get into it yet. I think that goes into a lot of the political aspects of this movie that they managed to tap into coming out in 2002. This idea of how much do people really want to know about what's keeping them safe? Or do they just want to know the system works, you'll be protected, everything's fine. Right. When were the Abu Ghraib pictures coming out? I mean, when when were we finding out just all the dirty secrets of waterboarding and Guantanamo Bay and all that fun stuff? Well, he didn't find out till later, but Guantanamo Bay had actually, the detention camp had been established in January of that year. And uh, that's when, I believe, when the rendition stuff really started around that time. I also keep thinking of the uh, the Dick Cheney doctrine, the 1% doctrine. If there's a 1% chance it's going to occur, it must be treated as an absolute certainty, which I think is the case in a lot of these murders, especially once we find out about the minority port and the possibility that maybe these murders wouldn't happen if left to their own devices. I think a lot of hoopla was made over the interface that Tom Cruise uses. I know a lot of people have referenced this, even being in the web business. A lot of people talk about how they want their websites to look like this and this whole idea of peeling back layers. And then, of course, we would see it again in a few years in a little bit more of a refined way with Tony Stark and being Iron Man and the way that he can pull things apart in, in space and use this kind of holographic projection. But that was kind of the big thing with this movie is the way that that he uses this almost – it kind of reminded me of Johnny Mnemonic and the way that Johnny Mnemonic would go into the internet and be able to unlock things with his cyber gloves and all that kind of stuff. But I really like this opening where he is looking through all these pieces of evidence trying to find where the murder is going to take place. It looks really cool. And I, I think it's definitely an image that has uh, kind of surpassed the movie. Um but there's something so ableist about the technology, and I know people want it, but can you imagine not being able to move your arms so that you can't access this technology at all? It's just, I don't love it, but I think it looks really cool. It's a nice visual, dramatic way to explore a lot of these ideas. I like how it's kind of the futuristic version of how a detective would use clues to construct a narrative, but also that it also suggests an editor assembling images to create a story. It's kind of almost a meta comment on how a filmmaker puts together a movie. And the idea that these people who are being investigated are now sort of characters in this story that already have a predetermined end. Yeah, there's the one moment where he's going back and forth and back and forth. And it totally reminds me of somebody like shuddling in, in an editing bay. Yeah. Exactly. I also kept thinking, maybe this is a little bit of the inspiration for the Wii. Oh, very nice. Put on something, move stuff around the screen. Somebody saw that and went, we can make millions off this. I know that some people, of course, the uh, the never fallible IMDb trivia for this movie, they were saying, well, of course, there's this whole idea of the uh, the scissors in here because Scott Frank wrote this and he also wrote Dead Again, which had scissors and this whole idea of Ari Gross using scissors as a murder weapon. And I really hate to break it to people, but this was actually in an earlier draft that Scott Frank didn't. Uh, right. So it was all the way back into the uh, the previous one. Oh, but you don't want to ruin people's I know. theories. Let them have fun. I know, right? So <laughs> Let them have their shiny things. But I, I do think it's just a coincidence, but it's a happy one. And then we get the commercial that happens after we see how this pre-crime stuff works, where we get this whole idea of this referendum. And we've seen this a thousand times in so many movies where there's an election that's coming up or a vote that's coming up. And now we are, you know, we're going to run into the political machinations of this. But then having this commercial placed where it is in the film, I was so reminded of 
Paul Verhoeven and the way that Verhoeven uses commercials in his movies. I mean, rewatching Total Recall for yes. the previous episode, I mean, so much of our information comes from commercials. And here we are again, setting up the world again with a commercial. Or Robocop or Starship Troopers. And I love how it sets the stakes. It's like, okay, now we've seen this in action. Now imagine this on a national level that everyone's going to be doing this all over the country. It kind of lets the audience know what's at stake here with this. Plus, it reminds me of every election year, all the political ads that we get. The propaganda. Yeah, I was kind of getting chills of like, oh, God, all that. Every election year, it's like, I can't wait for the election to be over so we don't have to watch them anymore. As far as storytelling, though, it's a brilliant way of laying it out. Instead of having another character just kind of walk us through, having something that creates its world building. And that world is telling us what this subject is about. I keep wondering, though, how would they actually do this on a national level? Can they use the same three people to do crimes for the entire country? I mean, just having them for D.C. seems like a lot. There was mention of somehow creating more. It was. It was in one of the earlier drafts yeah. that they were looking into breeding more of them because I kept thinking the same thing, especially when Agatha is really the key one. It's like you really have one who's the strongest precog really doing this. Uh, that would probably overwhelm them on a national level. Yeah. So it's assumed that that's part of the stakes is that more kids are going to be experimented on and turned into these precogs. And there's going to be more of that abuse as well. But it's a very specific sort of child, one that was born addicted to Neurotin, was it? Neuroin, I think. Yeah. Then given the experimental drugs by Iris Heinemann, the general public isn't going to know that we basically have human experimentation going on for their own betterment. For the greater good, these children are going to suffer and possibly die. I like that it's the same drug. It's an early form of the drug that Tom Cruise is on, which is what caused these people to mutate. I did have a thought. I I don't think it holds water, but since Anderton was addicted to this and his wife is pregnant at the end, it's like, are they going to have themselves a little precog? Oh. Probably doesn't work that way, but the thought did occur to me. Maybe they were like, here, there's the sequel setup. He goes and solves crimes with his kid. I love that in the Philip K. Dick story, they are just described as mutants. And they have these (laughs) huge encephalitic heads and they just murmur all day. And there are people there that are writing down everything that they're saying and they just won't. It's like this babbling brook of information that comes out of them. They're emaciated bodies. Uh, Dick, Dick does use some language to describe them that's not great. but <laughs> No, not PC at all. Yeah. But the idea that these mutants are kept away from society, they're hidden not just because of how they look, but what they can do. We never really explore the employees of pre-crime, you know, the people who are taking down this information, what kind of clearance do they have? Is this a governmental outfit? Is this a private company? I don't know that those questions are ever asked. It seems like they're cops on like a a local level that's about to go federal, but they are still like basically licensed law enforcement personnel. Well, the one guy, doesn't he say that he was in... He was a treasury agent, I think? Yeah. So him doing this cop work, it's like, okay, this seems kind of out of your purview. Yeah, I wonder if eventually they just kind of get bored, especially if, um, I mean, the Red Ball ones would be a little bit more exciting. But otherwise, eventually, you'd think people would start to get the message and not really try to commit murder anymore. So they're kind of sitting around doing other stuff. Which they do mention, but crimes of passion are, you know, that's why they're crimes of passion. They just happen. 
One thing I did think was interesting on that, that front, though, is that the investigative apparatus has disappeared. That's like once they prevent the murder, they don't really seem to be all that interested in the motive or in the background of it, why it occurred. They just stop it, put the guy in, you know, freeze, and that's it. And we see how that affects them later on with the, the Ann Lively murder and other murders where they just – they're not interested in what motivated it. It made me wonder – when um, premeditation becomes such a factor in how long they have, if somebody hires somebody else to co- commit a murder, is the timeout kind of based on the person who hired the person to commit the murder or the person who was hired to commit the murder? Good question. There's a lot of weird gray area when it comes to exactly how the precogs and pre-crime would work. Well, it's kind of ironic since Catherine Morris would go on to work on Cold Case, the TV show for CBS. And that is so much about crimes of passion and things that just happened, you know, 50 years ago or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing her in this and thinking, wow, she looks familiar. And I I didn't see her anything until that TV show came on. The one thing you were talking about, the other people that are there, the Wally, the caretaker character is very interesting to me and he's the only one that makes it over to the tv show we'll talk about that later but daniel london he always wears these uh kind of either loud shirts or loud shorts very hawaiian pattern and then the way that he's in the tank with the precogs he so reminds me of a dolphin keeper (laughs) yes a really creepy (laughs) dolphin keeper who like who likes his pets who has, a little too much. Yeah, a little bit of a too much of a personal relationship with his pets. <laughs> Wally also reminds me of the Joss Whedon nerdy guy trope. The one guy who's creating all of the technology and who's awkward and, well, more awkward than Whedon awkward. And always wearing kind of loud clothes to show that he has a personality. Wally doesn't seem to be the sort of person who has other people around him, like actual people that he can really communicate with. So we see his personality through his shirt. It's because he's sort of a cardboard cutout a little bit. But it's notable that while he's the one who's closest to Agatha and the other precogs, she doesn't try to communicate with him to push him to investigate the end. But he can't do anything about it. But even then, I mean, she has all this time with him, but she knows not to bother to try and communicate communicate to him and maybe see if he would pass it along. He, I think she kind of knows that that's a dead end and she waits for Anderton to be close enough to reach out to him. And how much of this is knowing and how much of this is knowing she's going to do that? That's a good point. And he's maybe one of the few characters that we never see in another environment. Like the rest of the cops, we'll see them outside and inside. We'll see them in alleyways. We'll see them in buildings. But him, we really only see him there in the temple. He acts as basically uh, a priest of the precogs he doesn't exist anywhere else he could walk out the door and just vanish just into thin air gone he doesn't matter in our story outside the temple and i don't think he matters to himself outside the temple i was struck by the one line he has where when Anderton realizes he's the one about to commit this murder and wally looks up and goes oh, you've always been decent to me so i'll give you like a two-minute head start exactly that whatever relationship they had it was enough that anderton treated him maybe with basic respect that he's like all right i'm gonna give this guy a chance because this is probably the kind of respect he does not have on a, a day-to-day basis and that sense that when anderton has to bring Whitworth and everybody else into the temple we see that he he kind of respects wally's limits he keeps telling all right yeah don't touch them don't touch anything speak in a low voice. He respects Wally's rules for the temple. 
I like that after we get that commercial, we find out that Anderton isn't the cleanest person in the world. This whole idea of him running through the streets, again, running, everybody runs, and especially, <laughs> especially Tom <yes>. Cruise. <laughs> especially Tom Cruise. And we get him buying the drug from the blind man. And of course, we're going to be talking about eyes like crazy through so, this entire thing. So many references to eyes. Oh, and even just the language, just so many times that people say, like, do you have eyes on him? You know, eyewitness account. Just, yep. just every, it is peppered throughout this. I think it's a very clever script as far as the way that they use, you know, just even different uh, metaphors for looking and just constantly are bringing that into our face. I like that when you see Tom Cruise in a lot of movies, he almost always plays the guy who's his life is perfect and he's absolutely perfect. And, you know, it's I've I've heard it discussed that he he has a about in the middle of the movie or maybe he's not perfect, but realizes he is perfect and it's great. But I like that here we actually have him as a drug addict in the throes of drug addiction. And it's a darker turn than I think we normally see Cruise play around this period. At what time? period did he do magnolia that was uh two three years before okay so sort of in the same era he's starting to branch out a little bit from his clean cut leading man image to some degree probably because he was aging or was he was aging and now he is not (laughs) now he's not no he has stopped aging for a while maybe in another 10 years he might shed his skin and come out as a different person we don't know we've no idea oh time it's about time to molt so when he goes to the blind drug dealer, I don't know if either of you picked up that the drug is called Clarity. Oh. Clarity. <laughs> clarity of vision. I think I take that when I my allergies are really bad. <laughs> clarity. I, I was thinking of that too, yeah. <laughs> and it's an inhaler. Yep. Yeah, it seems like a very nice way of delivering the drug and that he's trying to sell him bad versions of it like he's they're shaking the thing so they can hear if there's the drug inside or Mm -hmm. not just like what are you trying to do ripping me off it also says something about how much he wants to keep it secret that you'd figure somebody like anderton is making a good amount of money but he doesn't have an upscale drug dealer he literally has to go into an alley and find a guy to get it and might get ripped off by it but it also says a lot about him as a character that he has to like he knows where to go Mm -hmm. he knows to go into the sprawl he knows generally where to look for a dealer it's kind of the old film noir trope of the detective who knows all the criminals on the street and knows where all the bad places are and knows where he has to go when he has to interact with those elements and it's a playoff of the the detective who's hard drinker here we have him being a drug addict which again points to uh sherlock holmes for yep. instance or eddie valiant yes. from who framed roger rabbit oh my gosh yes <laughs> And this whole thing of him going back home and watching home movies of the loss that he's had, I've seen that in so many things, but I am hard-pressed to come up with where I've seen it before. We don't usually see it um, represented this way. You just mentioned Eddie Valiant. I always think of that scene in Roger Rabbit where we pan across his office and see all the photos of him and his brother and uh, Dolores in the past and kind of get all the backstory visually that way. And he's looking at all those pictures. Most people don't have holographic projectors to make it that much more stylish, but... The only thing that's coming to mind is uh, the Griswold Christmas vacation when he's trapped <laughs> in the attic watching home videos. And I like that this holographic projector is coming at us from three different projections. So also mirroring the whole idea of the three different perspectives that the precogs have. Which is just another reference to the Holy Trinity. Oh, my God. The religious references in this movie so are many. just Here we go. off the hook. Yeah, so, so many. I mean, they specifically call out the whole idea of the priests and the oracles when they're in that place that they call the temple. 
Science has stolen most of our miracles. In a way, they give us hope. Hope of the existence of the divine. I find it interesting that some people have begun to deify the precogs. Precogs are pattern recognition filters, that's all. Yet you call this room the temple. Just a nickname. The oracle is where the power is anyway. The power's always been with the priests, even if they had to invent the oracle. But you guys are nodding like you actually know what the hell he's talking about. Well, come on, Chief. The way we work, changing destiny and all, I mean, we're more like clergy than cops. Jack? Yeah. Go to work. All of you. From there, we just go on and on, just to the point where the guy who is the caretaker for the prisoners, if you want to call them that. Gideon? The Gideon, yeah, um, Tim Blake Nelson, who I always love, and I was so happy to see him in this movie. Oh, he is great. <laughs> When people uh, commit these crimes, they get what they call halos. So they're immediately considered to be angels, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, Whitworth has his rosaries. And he refers to people, uh, well, he says that people have started deifying the precogs, which just kind of reinforces the idea that there's a bunch of mysticism and the idea that they are also infallible and that the flaw has to be human. So it's elevating them again into a god status. It also fits this idea that pre-crime almost becomes a religion and that for it to work, everybody has to totally believe in it. Everybody has to have faith. It has to be infallible. And anything that actually starts to stain that image has to be tucked away and destroyed. And unfortunately, my note doesn't say who says this, but um, I think it was Burgess. The more you want to believe something, the easier it is to be fooled. And there's this total belief in the precog systems. I think it also even comes to how some of the characters are framed. I kept thinking of that scene in, in, uh, with Agatha in their house describing the alternate future that Sean might have had. And she's framed almost like an angel or a saint. In fact, there are a couple of shots that remind me of uh, Carl Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. The angle, the fact that she has her head shaved, the lighting. It looks like they're trying to kind of paint her as a religious icon in a way. Oh, yeah, I can totally see that. That's a great call as well. Anderton is interesting because you can see him as sort of a skeptic of the religiosity of the precogs because he's in it. He He's in the trenches with them, so he doesn't really elevate them. He picks up very quickly on Whitworth's attachment to religion, which is not hard to miss with the ro rosaries, and he calls him Father Whitworth. He goes back to those beads several times, and I oh, didn't yes. even realize it until this last time I watched it. That last moment before he dies and he pulls them out like he's going to give himself one little prayer before he gets shot is a really nice touch. Characters usually have one totem. And in pretty much all of the scripts I read and the short story, gum was the Whitwer totem. Everybody gets gum. He hands out gum to everybody. And in this one, he has the gum, but he also has the rosaries. And it's really worth noting that the two totems kind of fight against each other. Unless you want to consider that gum to be like uh, the host. <laughs> <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the bubblicious wafer? Yes. I mean, I think we could improve, you know, some attendance at church if you get like a stick of gum instead. Oh, the yeah. The body bubblicious? The body of bubblicious? Yeah. <laughs> the fresh maker. <laughs> Your soul is now fresh. <laughs> minty clean. Your soul oh! is minty clean. <laughs> talking about religion to the point where even the Peter Stromerick character is named Solomon. Oh, and yeah. it's like, oh, wow. You know, they are not missing an opportunity to pull out a religious reference. 
I kind of love it. I know it, it feels like I'm being bombarded by the symbolism, but that's what I do. I, I look at movies and I pull as much to relate to theme and, and symbolism as I can. But I know for a general audience, that's not what they do. They go, they watch a film. And I think because this one is so multi-layered, the general audience is going to pick up on it. Which is nice because this could have just been a, you know, Saturday afternoon matinee kind of a thing. But that we do have these themes helps to elevate this to something that we're talking about 17 years later. And we're talking about the whole use of the eyes and everything, even when it comes to the vision of John being a murderer, that we have this quote unquote third person in the room, which is, or the man outside of the window looking into the window. So again, with the looking, but that he's wearing sunglasses is such a major thing. It's like, oh yeah, who is this guy? Is he wearing a jet pack? <laughs> what is going on? How can he be outside of the room? And how, why is he wearing these goggles? And then even, that whole uh, scene in the mall, and I know I'm kind of jumping ahead here, the scene in the mall where Agatha is hiding them because of different views and perceptions that way, right behind them as they're about to, to leave the mall, there is an ad going on where people are all wearing goggles. And it's just like, okay, this is nice. You know, we've really are, are pulling this together. Well, it's a willing change of vision. It, it's uh, allowing yourself to be obscured and your vision obscured. Did you see what was on that ad with the women with goggles too? No, what was that? The tagline that said, see what others can't. Ouch. Oh, nice. And of course, that we have a whole sequence that takes place where he is getting new eyes is pretty great. I love that character so much. That scene I particularly like because it reminds me a lot of this great Humphrey Bogart kind of pre-noir uh, mystery film, Dark Passage. There's a great scene in that movie where the main character who's accused of murder has to get a facelift in this back alley with this really creepy, skeezy criminal surgeon. And a lot of the mood of that scene of this sense of, what is this guy going to do to him once he's under the anesthetic? What is he going to wake up with for a new face? Kind of applies here when you think, all right, he has a past with this guy, a really bad past with this criminal. What kind of eyes is he going to give him? What's he going to wake up with later on? Oh, he gave him exactly what Anderton gave him, a new perspective. <laughs> now he's uh, turning Japanese. Yes. Oh. <laughs> with eyes, the eye dentist scan. I love puns. This one might be a little too much for me. It's E-Y-E dentist scan. Oh, it's good branding. Uh, I chuckled. <laughs> I did. I chuckled. But with the eye scan, it's infiltrating privacy. And I know we'll talk about privacy more, but the eyes are the window to the soul taking that a little further, the idea that um, there's a deeper enslavement because your eyes are being scanned all the time. Yeah, as opposed to, I wonder if you could wear sunglasses and block that out. I think at one point, there was a woman who was coming into basically a subway, and her eyes were closed and she was scanned. Hmm. But I don't know that gels with the rest of the film, because I know... During the scene when he's hiding out and he's allowing his eyes to heal, his eyes needed to be open to be scanned. Right. And there's uh, somebody in that tenement apartment where they say, open your eyes, and then the spider scans them. A mistake, an inconsistency, whatever. There's a few with some of the pre-crime stuff, but yeah. I've always wondered if the whole idea of him becoming Japanese is a reference to the Crimson Kimono, the Sam Fuller film that's playing in the in the uh, the apartment where he's healing up. I mean that they use Zoro and Crimson Kimono so in your face. I just keep thinking, how are these related to 
the rest of the film. Yeah, I was trying to put together the Zorro one. I wasn't quite sure, except for the idea that he has to go outside the law to get justice. That's the closest I could come to on that one. But I'm not having seen the Crimson Kimono, I couldn't really put more of a connection in on that one. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. I really got to bone up on Sam Fuller movies. For a while, that one was almost impossible to find, but luckily it's out there a little bit more readily than it was. It was like order from you know some bootleg place. Uh, maybe it was a copy off of a German TV signal or something. When the first time I saw it, it was pretty rough around the edges, too. And we've got Max von Sydow in here, who likes to be playing this kind of role of the father figure at this point in his career. And he is the dishonest father in this movie, which I always appreciate that. And it's almost like he's a father with two sons, if you want to think of Whitworth as one son and Anderton as the other. And then he is not faithful to either one of them. I'd almost look at it more as that uh, Anderton is one of his sons and that Agatha is his daughter, that he is desperate to protect and keep under his control under in his family, as opposed to letting her actual mother get her back. I love Max von Sydow. The problem was, as soon as he was in this movie, I'm like, oh, there's your bad guy. Just because I grew up with him as Ming the Merciless and even as the evil brewmeister in Strange Brew. So to me, I see Max von Sydow. I'm like, oh, he must be a bad guy. This role really reminded me of when he was in Judge Dredd and this whole idea of this legal system and that he is, you know, the old guard and trying to help out Judge Dredd and all of these things and that he takes that sacrifice and goes out into the wasted land. And uh, so I was thinking that he was okay at first, but then, yeah, as the movie goes on, I was just like, oh yeah, he's probably dirty. Too big of an actor in that role to not have a bigger significance and since he kind of it feels like he disappears for a lot of the chase part of the movie i'm like yeah he's gonna come back in some sooner or later it's funny the judge dread uh, reference though does remind me of how much this movie fits into the mold of like these dystopian law enforcement movies where you have a lead character who is a, an, a real adherent a real believer in the system who finds himself on the other side of it that's certainly the case in that judge dread movie and i was thinking logan's run uh francois truffaut's fahrenheit 451 and all these ones these guys believe in the system until all of a sudden they're hunted by it well for me this movie really calls from the big clock and then that was remade however many times with no way out and that uh, out of time movie with denzel but this whole idea of the man who has to investigate himself and i, I just really was very happy to have that because it's one of my favorites and that i like that not only is anderton investigating you know, why am i being set up for this and what is happening who is this person i'm supposed to kill but then we've got the second investigator of Whitmer, who is also investigating and finding out, oh, these pieces aren't adding up as well. And Whitmer goes from being a real antagonist to almost a protagonist right before he gets killed. I like that. I almost feel like the turn is a little too sharp. When he looks at the, the Leo Crow crime scene, immediately goes, oh, this is this was staged. I'm like, I have a little trouble with him making that leap. Him realizing there's a problem with the Ann Lively murder, I like because it does seem to speak to his character of this guy who's a bit of a perfectionist. They wants to make sure everything is, you know, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and sees that there is a problem here and decide and he can't let it go. He has to investigate it. I do like that aspect of it, that he'll investigate Anderson, but he'll investigate anything that comes across his way that doesn't feel right. Do you think he realizes right before he's killed that Von Sito is actually the murderer? I think as soon as Burgess actually says, listen, I think he starts to get an inkling of it. I mean, when he sees that the waves are going backwards and everything, and he figures that thing out that nobody's been able to figure out after all these years, I don't even know if Anderton has figured that 
out, but he manages to put that together. As soon as Lamar Burgess says, have you told anyone else about this? I was oh. like, oh shit, you are dead. It remind me a lot of that scene in LA Confidential where we finally find out who the criminal mastermind is. It's staged almost the exact same way where, have you told anyone else? No. Boom. Well, speaking of James Cromwell, as we often do, this movie reminded me so much of iRobot, and especially when it comes to the cars and this whole idea of the cars and manual driving versus automatic driving and this whole idea of these maglev cars. Sometimes I will actually get some of these scenes of Tom Cruise jumping from car to car mixed up with similar scenes in iRobot. I could definitely see that. That big chase in the tunnel in iRobot looks kind of similar. I love the big mechanized auto line fight just because I think it's sort of a Hitchcock reference. I remember reading that Hitchcock and Ernest Lehman had this grand vision of a scene for North by Northwest that they couldn't fit into that film where the main character is visiting an auto plant looking for somebody and he's walking along the auto line talking to somebody trying to find out where this guy is as a car is being assembled behind them. And when they get to the end of the line, somebody opens the door and the guy is dead in the car and just stumbles out. I almost feel like Spielberg and uh, Scott Frank have kind of reconfigured that for this by putting Enderton in the car instead. And the way that he just drives off, I was like, okay, that's kind of neat. I mean, I don't know if they would have the key in the car at that point or anything, or you would have to get identiscanned <laughs> to drive off in this thing. But I was like, I'll let this one pass. That's okay. Since he uses the car for most of the rest of the movie, you'd think they'd be able to track it somehow at that point. Somehow, yeah. I like um, Colin Farrell's little punching his fist kind of gesture that he does when he's angry. I thought that was a, a nice little personal effect. Yeah, if he had had a mustache, he would have been twirling it. Anderton, he ends up getting drugged quite a bit in this movie. And it reminds me again, we're talking about, um, you know, obviously one of the uh, precogs name is named after Dashiell Hammett. I was really reminded of Sam Spade in this and the way that he would get knocked out. He would be given a Mickey so many times or, or especially Dick Powell as Sam, as uh, Philip Marlowe would just, you know, that black pool opens up at his feet and he goes under because he's getting drugged by the plants. He's getting drugged by uh, Peter Stromer. There are so many different things times where he is going unconscious and which is a, a a weird trait to have our main character doing and then he goes unconscious for quite a bit of the movie once he gets haloed as well yeah and he goes underwater i mean uh corinne you were mentioning water as a theme and there's so much stinking water to this movie there is from the very first shot we're seeing the pre-crime and it's reflected at the top of where the um in the temple and it has that watery effect to it. That's our very first shot. And then, of course, we see Agatha in the mill. There's this idea of water being a creation force and a destructive force and a purification. Um, and we have all of those types of water in this film. Uh, as far as the destructive force, it's Agatha's mother who's drowning and lively. The tub in the precog vision at the beginning... Before the wife is stabbed, she's being drowned. Well, we've got Anderton in the tub uh, when he's hiding from the spiders. That's more of a rebirth. It's kind of because he's underwater like that. It's kind of womb like, and there's a rebirth. He comes out. He is uh, Japanese. Japanese. <laughs> he, he is. I. He, he is officially Japanese. Well, that really rhymes with him going underwater and holding his breath, and that's when he loses his son. Yes. I was thinking of that. When when parents go underwater in this movie, they lose their kids one way or the other. Either yes. they die or the kid disappears. 
I want to say there's a lot of puddles is, that we're seeing. I mean, even when we're not directly talking about water, I mean, there are puddles galore, I want to say, in those alleyway scenes. There's so much rain. The first two hollow recordings that we see is Sean at the beach, and then Lara is talking about uh, the Rosarito Beach that they are in as a vacation, and that she wants him to come watch the rain. So it's hitting it hard. It's hitting the water very, very hard. And of course, Agatha and Anderton's escape from the temple, that's kind of a birth, literally a birth canal. I kept, kept thinking they got flushed. They did. Well, yes, they got flushed, but they also, I mean, it's amniotic kind of fluid, the milk. That's true. And they're going down a chute. So it's, it's kind of like, yes, this is birth. Yeah, it's like they just woke up from the Matrix. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, in fact, that's exactly the visual reference i think the whole idea of Anne lively being drowned and this is me stretching quite a bit but her getting drowned and her wearing that red coat i was so reminded of don't look now it's funny because when i i think of the red coat i thought of schindler's list and the idea of this Which particular, is what i went to too this particular victim is important keep an eye on on this color or um, even from a couple of years earlier, Unbreakable, when Bruce Willis has his visions in that movie of crimes taking place, usually either the assailant or one of the victims has a really strong – there's one particular color that's emphasized in all those scenes. Well, red has the longest wavelength of all the colors, so we look at it longer, and that's why we pay such close attention. That's why we really notice red. So the choice of red – because it could have been any color, but it was like, nope, highlighting this one person – also, it seems like it's drained out from everywhere else in the movie. We it don't is. get much red at all. So We have blood a little bit, but yeah, that's about it. Yeah, we get the red ball, but yeah, and those are the crimes of passion. Those are the ones that are the rarest. The last thing I wanted to mention about the water is Leo Crow, who says he basically sunk Anderton's kid in a barrel in water. So it, it's become uh, a kind of return to the ground thing. So it's birth, rebirth, and death. Plus, he's safe. Water in the womb area is safe. And he does say that he is safe. I do have to mention that whole idea of the tenement building and the spiders. And I really do like what Spielberg does here as far as this. I want to say it's almost a single take of the overhead shot of the spiders going through the building and to see all of the different people again. You know, you mentioned Hitchcock. It's almost like taking rear window and laying the apartment building flat. It also Absolutely. And it's something that we see later in Tarantino's Kill Bill, volume one. It also gives us a nice cross-section of how these different people react to this constant surveillance. You get like the old woman who just sits there and she's totally fine with it. You get the couple who are so used to it that in the middle of their fight, they stop for a second and then they go right back to fighting. And then the couple having sex who are really upset by this uh, this intrusion and the kids who are just terrified of it. Well, this is day-to-day life. Uh, if you live in an in inner city at all, the police racing by, whatever, it's fine. This but- happens all the time, several times a day. But we see some people accept it, and some people are really upset by it and don't like it at all and are terrified by it. Well, yeah, talk about the class difference between this place where Anderton lives, and then especially at the end where Max von Sydow is getting his uh, golden bullets and his gun and just the lavishness of that. It's such a huge difference in class between these two areas of Washington, D.C. 
Well, there's so much white in all of the affluent areas, white and glass. And then we get to the tenements and everything's very dingy, browns. Everything's much darker. I'm not sure we ever see the tenements during the day. I don't think so, no. The class division is another thing. We have the marginalized people who, honestly, I don't think they would care if they had a red ball on them. I mean, they're going to do something about it because they're pre-crime, but... I don't think they would care as much. Yeah, I think once they figured out where they were at. I mean, I guess the um, the one thing that we see during the day is the saltine box apartments where Leo Crow eventually gets it. I think he says that those are public housing. But that, again, is a way step up compared to where Stromera is. And Stromera's amazing kitchen. I don't know why he hasn't cleaned up his refrigerator in forever, but um, that makes for an amusing it scene. It does. Out of character scene. It, it's that moment of humor that I don't think we have humor in the movie, except for <laughs> this this point, the, the disgusting milk and the moldy sandwich. And it feels a lot of place, but it also feels very human. I mean, if you, if you are sightless, this is going to happen. It's interesting. I never took that to be the doctor's apartment. I took it to be some apartment they just found and just set up as a temporary sort of operating room. And he just leaves and that's it. He, that last time he goes in. So all that stuff in the fridge could have been left there from some previous tenant from way, way back. In one of the scripts, it was a different apartment. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I'm sure that it wasn't Stromero's apartment. I'm sure that they just said, we'll meet here and do this. Because, yeah, he's one of those fly-by-night doctors. You know, if if somebody gets shot, they're probably going to go to him to get the bullet taken out. You know, if if Jack falls into the uh, Axis chemicals, they're going to go to him to get his face fixed, you know. Oh, and talk about Stormare. God, you just unleash him on a scene, and he is amazing. Oh, God, I love Stormare, especially in these weird little roles where he'll just show up for, like, one scene, and he'll just chew on the scenery for a while and then leave, and you just, you know, you, you know that he's been there. I mean, things like this, things like Armageddon, there's so many movies where he'll just pop up, and it's just like, wow, I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for gracing us with your presence in this movie. Not even just film. There's a video game that Tim and I love called Until Dawn. And he plays a cutscene character that goes throughout the film. And it, it's brilliant. I just love the idiosyncratic nature of his acting, his affectations. Just uh, so much fun to watch. Reading the script, you can imagine how another actor might have, have delivered these lines, but like when he delivers that speech about, oh, thank you so much, John, for that experience of going to jail. That was really good. He's just so creepy and intimidating with, without really going too far over the top with it, just keeping it kind of low and simmering. It's really unsettling. I mean, hiring him is like hiring Goldblum. You know what you're getting into. <laughs> yep. You want that very specific thing. The first time I ever saw him, this is kind of an aside, but the first time I ever saw him was in Fargo. Oh, me too. Yeah. And he so reminded me of Timothy Carey and this whole idea of Timothy you know, being used, Timothy Carey being used by uh, Kubrick and that he was this force of chaos, even though we all think that Kubrick was some sort of control freak and everything had to be locked down and blah, blah, blah. But then you bring 
Timothy Carey into something, and he's this force of chaos who's just going to talk through his teeth the entire time or start to cry when he's not supposed to or any of these things. And Stromer has that same kind of energy. I always thought that if they were to do a biopic on Timothy Carey, that Stromer should have, should play that character. That would be amazing. <laughs> I remember seeing him in a, when I think it was Crime Wave with Sterling Hayden, where he plays this, this thug who's just always giggling in the background, just like, nah! And, he also had for a while the most amazing IMDb profile photo ever. Him showing up at the end of DC Cab is kind of like Stromer showing up at the end of Constantine. You know, it's just like, the, again, just these little moments that he can just do no wrong in. I was going to bring that up. He is one of my favorite movie Satans. Oh, God, yeah. Him without the, the, the shaved eyebrows. <sighs> so good. Him and Tom Waits are kind of tied. Yeah, and that's another thing. I think that the Coen brothers should use him a little bit more. You know, they they use Tom Waits pretty well, and they use it. this this movie. Kind of reminds me of uh, Coen brothers movies with with uh, Tim Blake Nelson in here as well. Yeah. But it's like, please continue to use Peter Stromer in your films. And then, of course, we get to what's supposed to be the murder scene, which is the whole Leo Crow idea that we have here. And I like this moment. You know, he's broken out. Anderson's broken out. Agatha, you know, we talked about them being flushed. We've had the scene in the mall, which I think is one of the best uh, sequences in the film. It kind of reminds me of uh, Bill and Ted's uh, excellent adventure, where it's like, you know, you got to use the time machine and, and remember there are keys in this bush. And it's like, you know, okay, yeah, stop right here and then move this way. And there's a woman with a briefcase. And it, uh, anyway, but, um, <laughs> to, but when they get to the hotel, of course, one of my other favorite characters who shows up in almost every Tom Cruise movie is Willie Maple there. And I always appreciate him just being a complete scuzzbuck and in pretty much anything he's in. I was going to say that for me, he is the eternal creep, partially because of Lost, where he's just creepy, and especially because of In the Bedroom. I can't see him in anything and not be kind of like, oh, this guy's skis. I want to stay away from him. Yeah, he's not somebody that you want to invite to like a cocktail party. No, not really. <laughs> and even the guy that plays Leo Crow, pretty skeezy as well. Oh, Mike Bender. Yeah, who's actually directs quite a bit too. Uh, he's a really good director. Yeah, just looking at him, he's like, this is another guy like, oh, this is this is a very sketchy kind of individual. And once you find out what he's supposed to have done, it's like, yep, that totally fits to look at him. I do have one issue with this scene and – to me, this actually is where the film should have ended. I think this is actually the climax of the movie. I think it's the best scene of the film. And my problem is it's so good that everything after this feels kind of anticlimactic to me. Oh, interesting. I almost feel like you could have ended with Anderton not shooting him. And that's the end of pre-crime. That because he doesn't kill this guy, that destroys pre-crime. And that's it. I also just I love the idea that for a while we're assuming there's some conspiracy to frame him. And in this scene, when I first saw this, I thought, oh, the conspiracy is a red herring that that's that's not actually happening. He actually is going to kill this guy. I was so blown away by this idea that none of that was real. I really, really appreciated that. And then to go on. Oh, no, actually, there is a conspiracy. And this guy didn't actually kill his son. I felt like it robbed a little bit of the power of him actually not pulling the trigger. I think Cruz is so amazing in that scene. Even watching it again this week, I've seen this film so many times, I still feel the suspense of that moment when he has his finger on the trigger and he's ready to shoot. I don't think anything else in the last act of the film, while there are some great scenes, really quite hits that level for me. You're right. It is a red herring. He never finds out who actually killed Sean, correct? No, no. He doesn't even find out if he's still alive or not. Yeah, I'm very surprised that at the end of the movie, and we'll definitely be spoiling the end of this film, I'm surprised at the end of the movie Sean doesn't come back because we are – 
put into this idyllic place. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen uh, Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans, but there's the, the end of that film where everything turns out right and it's almost like a sitcom ending. We have almost that sitcom ending with this film. Yeah, I'm I'm glad they didn't go that extra step with it. I think that really would have ruined things. As it is, it's tidy. Yeah. It would have been like that fucking horrible War of the Worlds movie where the sun comes <laughs> back. And it's like, how did you survive all this shit? The movie is like 99% masterpiece. And then that moment happens like, oh, no, you just fumbled at the goal line. Well, Ugh. I think this is around the time Spielberg really did not want to leave audiences on a down note. I, I, I just, I feel like that particular note of ambiguity is, it's where the Tom Cruise character has to be, that he has to make peace with this. And I think if he made peace with it and then, oh, and by the way, here's your son. Oh, that would have been such a ripoff. Do you guys think that Lamar Burgess, was he named after Anthony Burgess? Cause to me, the whole idea again of the eyes and the criminal who is turned into a good guy and all this kind of stuff, it really reminds me of a clockwork orange. That was my take from it. Absolutely. There's certainly that direct visual homage when um, Anderton's getting his eyes removed when his eyes are jutted open by the machinery that looks just like Alex in the um, in the prison when he's watching those movies. Which brings me to another thing is so many people have things on their heads. I mean, we talked about the halos. There's the thing with the eyes. And then even Agathy and the precogs all have these headgear that they wear. I don't know what to make of it necessarily, but it's definitely a, a, another motif that happens in this film. It seems like a, yet another form of control. We're not just going to control your possible futures, your identity, where you travel, what you purchase. We are going to also enslave your mind. I also feel like maybe that the halo technology and the technology they use in the precogs is related. Like they developed one and use it for another thing as well. So we can read thoughts, but we can also just sort of jam up somebody's brain with it at the same time. Well, I'm always curious when they put the halo on, because we see them in Gideon's domain. Um, I like how he says, you know, Oh, John, you, you join my flock. They show the crime happening in front of their faces are they aware of what's going on? Are they seeing the crime over and over again? Because it seems like they're keeping them alive, but they're keeping them in stasis. And I guess to go to another one of my favorite movies, I wonder if this is like Demolition Man, where they are trying to teach them something else, control their minds that way. You know, is he learning knitting now as he's uh, in this prison? Or do they just keep them until they die? I mean, there's a lot of questions as far as that goes for me. It's one of the creepiest elements of the movie to me when like in the original story, when it's just there's a risk of going to um, a prison colony, it's like, all right, that's a bummer. But to be put in this what appears to be this sort of vegetative state and there's no indication there's any kind of parole or end of sentence that that's it. Once that halo goes on, you're like this. That's terrifying. Yeah, because even murderers get a chance to, you know, redeem themselves or come out on parole after, you know, what, two, three years at least. They aren't interested in rehabilitation at all. This is containment. Literally. And we never find out exactly what the experience is like. Is it like all your dreams come true and your life flashes before your eyes? Is it just a big blank? Is it absolute horrifying pain? We never really find out. And I'm not sure anyone would know if they hadn't gone into it and come back out. Anderton would be able to answer that for us. 
I do miss that scene that was in the screenplay, but not in the film. And apparently they filmed it because um, Spencer Treat Clark is credited for it, where he would have seen the vision of Sean that tells him, oh, no, I died. I was killed. And this idea of, OK, is he actually getting some kind of psychic message from Sean or is this just his mind sort of turning inward on itself and giving him this this sort of inner peace of knowing that his son did finally pass away? I want to talk a little bit about the scene with Agatha laying out this possible future that um, she does. You mentioned how she looks like Joan of Arc from Passion of Joan of Arc and the, the way that we have the light behind her and this very angelic look to her. That whole scene of her kind of saying, like, this is what one future could have been. I think that is one of the more powerful scenes of this film. And it really kind of speaks to this whole idea of the possible futures. And that's obviously where the whole minority report comes into it is there are two people that are seeing one future, a third person who might see a different future. What happens if that different future comes true? I agree with that up to a point. My interpretation of that scene was that Agatha was seeing the future. She wasn't seeing a possible future that could have been, but she was seeing Anderton and Lara getting back together, having a child, which they do. So I think she was having a precognitive vision. And of course, she ties it back down because like, there is so much love in this house. So it's a present tense. And she's going into the future. And then she talks about Sean and she says there was so much love in this house. So she's acknowledging the break and then the future. Dr. Hinneman once said the dead don't die. They look on and help. Remember that, John. Thanks. Sean. He's on the beach now. Oh, in the water. He's asking you to come in with him. He's been racing his mother up and down the sand. There's so much love in this house. He's ten years old. He's surrounded by animals. He wants to be a vet. You keep a rabbit for him, a bird, and a fox. He's in high school. He likes to run, like his father. He runs the two mile and the long relay. He's 23. He's at a university. He makes love to a pretty girl named Claire. He asks her to be his wife. Lara who cries. He still runs across the university and in the stadium where John watches. Oh God, he's running so fast, just like his daddy. He sees his daddy. He wants to run to him. But he's only six years old and he can't do it. And the other man is so love in this house. I also thought it was a really nice way for her to point to Anderton and go, it's not just you who's suffering over this. Your wife has been suffering over this loss as well. And this idea that 
well, yes, there is an alternate future for Sean. There might have been an alternate reality where they could have stayed together and Anderton didn't turn to drugs and they might have been happier for those years, but it didn't have to be the two of them separate and alone and miserable. Yeah, and I don't know why Agatha doesn't then tell John to run a little bit earlier because she doesn't really give him a heads up. It would have ruined her her speech. I know. <laughs> she, she, she very selectively lets them know what the future brings. It's like... He runs. He makes love to a girl named Claire. He, oh, wait a minute. Uh, people are coming, but let me get through this part real quick and then you can go. Okay, just one sec. <laughs> no, it's good. It's going to be worth it. Don't worry, John. I've watched this movie I don't know how many times. And it wasn't until the other night when I was laying in bed that I thought to myself, well, what happens if the rest of this movie is a dream? You know, I just watched Total Recall again. So the whole idea of Quaid being stuck in this dream and having this schizoid embolism rewatching this again the other night, I was like, well, what happens if they put this halo on and then everything that happens after it is him imagining it in the prison because things really start to change as far as the, the way that the movie goes that we have uh, his wife now becomes the investigator. You know, we've killed, we've killed Whitworth. So she, he can't investigate Anderton's out of commission because he's stuck in this prison. And then Laura becomes the investigator and starts to go through this and almost has that that same moment with uh, Max von Sydow's character where, where I'm almost expecting him to say, have you told anyone else about this again? You know, <laughs> I love that it ties in with the, uh, the image the holographic videos. It's what is reality? Are we watching this and it's our reality? Are, are we dreaming? It is that reality at the possible futures? So it's peeling away different ideas of what people construct reality to be. That theory also would make this a really great double feature with Vanilla Sky. We have Tom Cruise again, possibly in a not quite real reality. Which I think he was just wrapping that up as he like walked onto Minority Report. Yeah, the, the two of them butted up against each other to the point where in the train scene, if you look closely, you can see Cameron Diaz and Cameron Crowe both uh, watching Anderton. Cameron Crowe's the one who looks over the uh, newspaper at him, and Cameron Diaz, just the top of her head, is visible right behind him. Uh, to repay the favor, Steven Spielberg has a cameo in Vanilla Sky pretty much playing himself. <laughs> I haven't seen Vanilla Sky. I've only seen uh, Abras Los Ojos. There's a party scene where he walks right up to Tom Cruise, dressed as Steven Spielberg, the jacket, the hat, and like, oh, you son of a bitch, good to see you, and walks off. Well, maybe maybe I can finally use this as my excuse to watch Vanilla Sky. We're seeing, it's pretty good. Well, I know the original was fantastic. I just, I had seen the original, the remake came out, like, within a year of me seeing the original, so I was like, yeah, I don't really need to see this a second time. I'm sorry to say I haven't seen the original yet. I, I really have to get to it. I like Amenabar's stuff, but I just haven't been able to find it yet, or find the time. I saw it on VHS. That tells you how long ago this was. <laughs> but yeah, things wrap up almost too neatly for me. This whole idea of him calling Burgess and being this kind of voice of God and laying out everything in his ear as we're getting the end of this. The way that Cruz is standing there again with his hoodie on, just like we saw him when he was jogging. And that Washington Monument standing up there so proud and phallic, <laughs> you know, kind of like we're going to be toppling the patriarchy any moment now. And then, yeah, when, uh, you know, it's like, okay, and pre-crime was disbanded, and the precogs got sent off to an idyllic island, and Laura and Anderton are pregnant again, and everything's going to be fantastic. And it just, it wraps up so fast. It's like, wow, okay, that was, that was pretty spectacular. Waiting for him to say, and Whitworth, it turns out he's still alive! Yay! <laughs> I have a big problem with Burgess's turn. 
considering everything that this guy has done to protect pre-crime, that he's murdered Anne Lively in a really grim, horrible way, that he's been willing to frame this guy who he's treated like a son and destroy him. When it comes to that last moment, I don't believe that he wouldn't just shoot Anderton to keep pre-crime going. Why just shoot himself? Why can't he shoot Anderton to prove that it happened and then shoot himself so he doesn't have to have the halo? I wish we had seen a little bit more of maybe Burgess really being weighed down by the guilt of the Anne Lively murder and what he did to Anderton. And maybe I buy that this is one murder too many and he just can't make that leap. But the way it's set up in the film, I totally buy that he would have just shot him. He was pretty cold-blooded in his murder of Whitwer. I'm not sure I would even believe, oh, I've had a change of heart. I can't kill again. Well, that was Whitwer. Nobody likes Whitwer. Anne Lively's killer, the hired killer, is a John Doe because his eyes are missing why didn't they find his name from the ball that would drop down with the, the suspect name on it? Well, this is be before pre-crime, I think, wasn't it? Or no, you're right, because it's all recorded. Oh, yeah. That's a good question. Um, it brings to mind uh, one other weird thing that uh, Decision Whitmer makes that never made sense to me. When Anderton steals uh, Agatha from the temple and somebody, I think it's Fletcher, is like, well, so seal this off and find him. And Whitmer's like, no, no, she's already part of his future. We know that she's going to be there. Why would he decide not to continue the chase? They're trying to prevent that from happening in the first place. So they'd have a better shot if they tried to stop Anderton from leaving the building. What well, brings to mind that whole thing that we haven't really talked about, which is determinism. And how much of this is determinism? How much is free will? I mean, I would be shocked if they don't show this movie in first year philosophy classes. Absolutely. It's, it's, I like how it brings these philosoph- uh, philosophical ideas to a mainstream audience, too, in a, the kind of movie that you normally wouldn't see this kind of heavy philosophical content in. Which, again, I think speaks to the whole religious theme that we have in this movie, which is the, there's the idea of God's plan versus free will and which side you fall on. And it seems to be, you know, you have to be one or the other. At least, you know, philosophy 101 says you have to be one or the other. And it's just like, okay, you know, are our future set? Do we make choices or has everything been laid out before us and we are just actors in this and following the, the rules that have been set out? Or are we, you know, is it that moment in Avengers Endgame where we see, you know, the, the soul stone or the uh, the time stone being moved out and then a secondary timeline being created and now we have the multiverse. Spoiler alert for Endgame <laughs> as well. <laughs> it's, we're past the period, it's fine. Oh, if we're going to say spoiler alert for Minority Report. Yeah. Uh... I, I think that's an interesting part of the original Philip K. Dick story that every time somebody learns something from one of these previsions, it changes it and creates another previsión and another previsión. The idea that all these tiny variations will keep changing this projected future. I think Dick is trying to have it both ways, though, where you do have a choice, but now your choice has a predestined future. You, you are going to go along this path until you make a different choice. So it's it's both in a way. But what I like about the movie is that it's not giving us any sort of answer, clear cut or otherwise, because uh, the murder Anderton was going to commit actually happened, even though he did everything he could to prevent that from happening. And the only proof we have of a free choice is with Burgess. Burgess. Yeah. And I- even then, you've brought up the idea that this isn't happening, really. And that's a compelling argument for me. 
I did think it was amazing that everything that happens in the prevision does happen that, you know, you're not going to kill me comes across one way when we're seeing it in the prevision that he's almost daring Anderton, you're not going to kill me. And then an entirely different way when we actually get to that. Scene. Oh, because the precogs didn't have really intonation when they were saying these words. So it sounds ominous rather than you're not going to kill me. And to the point where even some of those exact shots are used in the final scene when he's flying out the window and Anderton still has the gun pointed at him that made it look like he was the killer has a completely different meaning now. Right. I mean, that, again, going back to the man outside the window, that nobody realizes, oh, this is just an advertisement rather than there's an actual man outside the window. I do think that uh, advertisement outside the window is a stand in for the audience, though. We're observing this. We're on the outside. We're separated by a layer of glass, usually a screen of some sort. Yeah. And I like this whole going back to that interface the idea of the guy who is capturing information on the smaller screen and then plugging it into the larger screen and then being able to take things across. I don't know why they don't have necessarily Wi-Fi technology at this point, why they can't just beam that across to the larger screen. But I like this interface that he has. It's almost like a Star Trek Next Generation type of tablet that he's able to slot into that larger screen. The use of glass actually reminded me of that Total Recall remake, where anytime somebody wants a conversation, they just put their hand on a pane of glass and they have an image that pops up. But this idea of glass as sort of this display and storage unit, I thought was really slick and clever in this idea that technology will get that small and that refined, that it can just be this tiny little piece of glass with all this information on it. Yeah, I think I read someplace that it was basically like the inside of an iOmega zip drive or was modeled on an iOmega zip drive. I mean, talk about a blast from the past. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, if we think about if all of this stuff is taking place in Anderton's head once he gets haloed, basically he's lost. You know, it is that, that whole idea of Quaid in the chair at recall being lobotomized. It's the idea of Anderton being taken out of the way. Laura, I don't know where she's at at this point, but maybe she didn't investigate these things. And basically, the bad guy wins. Burgess gets away with it. They have their referendum, and then he gets to create all these mutant children and become the lord of pre-crime. That's cynical enough that I would actually believe it as a Philip K. Dick ending. (laughs) Dick was fantastic when it came to the bad guy wins kind of an ending and just that's how it goes. I mean, the idea to me is Deckard a replicant or is he not a replicant? You know, is he programmed to think that he's human and then taking out all of these other replicants? I mean, yeah. Okay. That that's pretty fucking cynical. I kind of like that. And I think with Dick, with this total recall and blade runner, the the key idea is the ambiguity that Mm. we don't actually know definitively. We don't know, what the, is happening in the present. And in this case, we also don't know what's in the future. Definitively and it, it doesn't matter because it's more just that the question is being asked. And then we have to just fight it out until we come to our own understanding of it, creating our own reality, our own narrative. I mean, Minority Report is the perfect kind of a movie that you go see and then you go to a coffee shop afterwards and you just argue about it. For me, it was a Denny's. That was our usual post movie spot for me and a friend of mine to just hash all this stuff out. We rewrote the uh, Star Wars prequels to be a lot better in that, Denny's. <laughs> <laughs> Millions of people rewrote those That's true. to be better. <laughs> I think they actually gave Obi-Wan Kenobi something to do. A little off topic. I just watched uh, the second and third one for the first time a few weeks ago. Wow. Not good. <laughs> 
Not good at all. It's very funny. The extras for this uh, on the extras disc, Spielberg keeps referring to Star Wars Episode Two, oh. <laughs> and so it just puts this in time so much. But it's great because he's he's not necessarily slamming Episode Two, but he is definitely talking about how he really likes having sets built and how actors really like have having things to bounce off yeah. of and. It's like, wow, yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. You should probably have a conversation with George about this. Have some basis in reality. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's helpful. And he was like, yeah, you know, those prequels, it's like 90% all computer generated. I was like, yeah. It shows. <laughs> yeah, it does. It looks like garbage. Whereas opposed to this, I mean, the movie looks like garbage because it's supposed to look like yeah. garbage as far as the things being desaturated and gritty and grainy. It's an artistic choice. I, I'm I'm pretty sure that um, Star Wars episodes one, two, and three weren't supposed to look like garbage. I mean, I hope. The used universe of the first three, like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. The whole idea of the, you know, the Millennium Falcons been beat up and stuff, as opposed to, what is this muddy mess that I'm looking at? Plus, having sets allows you to be a little more fluid with your camera work and, and find stuff i kept thinking of how many great shots in this are those wide angle shots with the steady cam following characters around and and how there's less cutting you don't have the usual back and forth you have a camera kind of moving around people as they're having this conversation and i don't know if you could do that with a cgi set it would have it would feel a little bit more constrained you know plant a little too much pre-planning and with this i do feel like there's a little bit more looseness in how the film is shot yeah, I totally agree. And you get those action scenes. You get the, you know, the scene in the, the car making factory. You get the scene with the jetpacks, all of these. And we've got our action set pieces. They are happening throughout here. But yeah, we have barely mentioned any of those things in our conversation because it's the other scenes that are the ones that are really driving this film for me. Yeah. yeah the, the action sequences are pretty standard. I mean, they're compelling because they get our character from one point to another where another piece of mystery is revealed. But the uh, the running, jumping, falling, it's just amusing. But it doesn't add much to the film itself. But, well, maybe a little tension. Yeah. But. I kind of had the same thing with Total Recall. You have all these great bloody shootouts and they're staged well. But for me, just a, a guy walking in and telling Arnold Schwarzenegger, you're not really standing here, has a lot more impact than yeah. a whole bunch of people being blown up or shot. Well, we know that Anderton is going to make it to this room, probably, so he's in no danger <laughs> the rest of the time. On the other hand, it does show off, get a chance to show off some of the cool technology. I absolutely love that spinning sonic gun that they use in the factory. That thing is awesome. That's pretty cool. And I love the six sticks. Oh, yes. God. It's such a nasty idea, but it's great. Yeah. Uh, I just, I love that these other agents using the sonic gun though, they're, they're winding it up very boring. Once Tom Cruise gets it, he spins it around really cool. Cause of course he's the guy who'll use it in a cool way. He's Tom Cruise. <laughs> he's like, uh, Arnold in, uh, Terminator 2 when he's spinning that shotgun around in order yes. to cock it. Yep. <laughs> so cool. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play an interview with one of the writers of Minority Report, Scott Frank. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. I know you know who I'm talking about. It's that guy. Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, he's, right? He's in a yeah, million movies. Yeah, the bushy movies. eyebrows. Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes have a mustache. Yeah, well, that, but, but he shaved. Well, he, no, he didn't. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen this, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. Listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. Hey, 
Do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy and filmmaking Nick Richards. In 2016, as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself, talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us enjoying the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. I am very curious about those early days and how you decided to get into screenwriting. Well, I'd always wanted to write. I mean, I wanted to write since I was a small child. I just didn't know you could do it as a career. So I'd been, you know, folk, very focused on that for a long time. And it wasn't until I got to college when I was thinking about pre-med or econ or something like that, that I met a teacher there who told me, you know, why not, if you're going to do it, do it. And so, you know, if you, if you have a fallback at your age, you'll fall back. So I, you know, I went for it and started, you know, very early in school studying it. Did you end up going to college for that as well? No, I went to college. I went to UCSB, which wasn't a well-known film program. It's a film studies program, and it's very interdisciplinary. So that was great for the writing aspect. I had you know no money for production. We had to borrow cameras, and you know we didn't have real cutting rooms. But it was definitely you, you would make films, and but but it was for me. It was a great way because I'm looking at all kinds of movies all the time from all different countries. It was a great way to think about writing. Well, how did you finally get into the business itself? Well, I graduated, and I was very lucky. It was in 1982 I graduated, and I was 12, 22, and I didn't know anybody in the business, and I'd written a script in school called Little Man Tate, and I you know, couldn't get anyone to read it, and I didn't know anybody, so what I did is I kept rewriting it. I met uh, through my grandmother, of all people. I remember getting it to a friend of, uh, the son of a friend of hers or something, or the grandson of a friend of hers who ran ABC Movies of the Week at the time, and again, this is the early 80s, and, you know, I, I kept bugging him because I didn't know any better to read, and he finally read it and told me I should take a writing class, <laughs> which is devastating to me, and he was right, it was a mess, and so I just kept working on it, and eventually, in 84, I got a job at Alan Landsberg Productions, I was doing research for their various shows, 
eventually I, I met somebody who, who began to help me with the script a little bit um, and would show it to various people and get help here and there. And I would just kept rewriting it over and over. And I finally got it to someone who worked at an agency and she passed it on. And, and next thing you know, I had an agent and this was in 84 and I was just about to start the American Film Institute. And um, I ended up being there for all of one semester before, you know, I had moved on to the office, into my office on the Paramount lot. And I was 24 years old, so I was super lucky. It was all of two years. I'd ended up pouring drinks in some of that time. After the Landsberg job, which was almost a year, I started bartending for a little over a year and then um, got into the AFI and then began earning my living in earnest as a writer uh, by the end of 84. What were some of those early gigs like? Were you punching up scripts or writing original stuff? No, no. I worked on I worked on a script called Plain Clothes, which got me Martha Coolidge. It's awful. Um, I liked the script very much. I then wrote Dead Again for Paramount while I was there. Little Man Tate got made at a different studio while I was there. Got made at Orion. And I, in between, I would be punching up for different people. I had a lot over the years. I have a whole side career where I've done tons of script doctoring, you know, maybe 50 movies or so. But, uh, and I got into that very early. I was just good at it. I got asked to do, I think it was the first thing I rewrote was a TV movie for Disney about Bigfoot that, um, Danny Houston directed. And, um, I rewrote it over a weekend. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you know, I started doing that here and there. And, um, and so, you know, I was kind of doing that along the way, but I wrote Dead Again at Paramount, and then I moved off a lot. I ended up being the longest writer. They had the writer's floor there that Jeff Katzenberg had started before, right before he left for Disney, and it was all writers, and it was supposed to be this old-school place where, you know, they would all be housed in one building at Paramount. It was fantastic. I met a lot of writers there, and including Dennis Feldman, who I one day walked into his office and said, I have this idea for a movie, and I pitched him dead again, and he helped me figure it out. And um, he ended up being one of the producers on it, um, along with someone who'd become one of my mentors, Sidney Pollack, later, because Lindsay Duran, and I'll stop throwing names at you in a minute, but Lindsay Duran was an executive at Paramount, and Ned Tannen, who ran the studio, brought her there at about the same time he brought me, and she really taught me how to write. I really learned how to write, writing both plain clothes for her and dead again for her. I really learned how to be a, a, a writer with her. And dead again took me a couple of years at least to write. I'm, I'm not the fastest writer on the planet. I can fix other people's scripts a lot faster than my own. That was sort of my foray into the business, and I was pretty much, I've been working, I'm very lucky, been working pretty steady since then, you know, and in, in all, all the way through. Dead Again was fantastic. I mean, I don't know how many people remember that film now, but it's one of those that people should definitely go back and check out because it was so good. Well, thank you. I get more people ask me about that movie than just about any movie I've ever written. It's one of those weird things when you finally realize, like, oh, this one guy was behind or involved with so many films that I've enjoyed over the years. Because things like Dead Again, Little Man Tate, Get Shorty, Out of Sight, Minority Report, The Lookout. I mean, The Lookout is one of those movies that I go out of my way to tell people to check that movie out because I enjoyed that one so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And, and they it's funny. They've all... They, for the most part, especially originals like The Lookout, took me forever to get made. 
Um, I never planned on directing that movie. I ended up directing that movie because it took so long to get it made with various other directors who'd come in and out of it, including David Fincher and Sam Mendes and others. When was your first time that you ended up adapting someone? It's somebody else's work. Was that with Malice or was that something else? No, Malice was a rewrite. Um, Aaron Sorkin and I rewrote each other on that one. And then Aaron Sorkin started, it was based on something true, on a treatment that was based on something vaguely true. And then he had to leave to go work on A Few Good Men for Rob Reiner. And it was all at Castle Rock. Then I came in and rewrote Aaron. And they brought in a director, um, and we just didn't get along. And so I was fired. Um, and then Aaron came back by the time he finished it and uh, finished uh, a few good men and finished that script. The first thing I adapted, I would say, was probably get shorty was maybe no i tried i tried a couple of things that i that didn't end up happening maybe before get shorty but basically i think get shorty was the one that was the first thing i adapted and then right around that time also heaven's prisoners a james lee burke novel adapted for my brother-in-law phil juano so those were probably the first adaptations that i did if i'm thinking right well what's your approach when you go to adapt to work Depends on the work. In the case of Get Shorty, half of it didn't work as a movie, so you had to invent half of it and where it was going and sort of really... Because I tried, I learned very quickly because you adapt a book because you love the book, I thought. And so I ended up trying to adapt the whole book. In other words, I, I would highlight different passages in different colors based on what had to be in it versus what might be in it, you know, versus what, uh, be in it, but different in a different place. And I highlighted the whole book and I realized that the script became a very trivialized, silly version of the novel and that you have to, when you adapt something, you have to decide what it's about for you. And I'm, I'm not big on coming up with a theme ahead of time. I'm big on landing on them accidentally. But when you're adapting, you, if you extract a theme from the book, it can help you organize your thoughts. And so, you know, I had this idea of identity and everyone coming to Los Angeles to reinvent themselves was really interesting. And so I kind of worked on it that way and approached it that way. And, um, you know, and you have to make decisions. You have to be bold about what you keep and what you leave. And there's stuff that you love in the book, but people don't know it's in the book. And I didn't have the pressure of it being a giant bestseller, in other words, so people knew it so well. So I wasn't, I wasn't ruining something that, you know, was beloved. It was actually something that people didn't even know about. So I had that benefit slightly. How did you come to work on Minority Report? Originally on Malice, Steven Spielberg read the script for Malice, and there was a weekend where he wanted to direct it or was thinking about directing it. And I get this call from his office, would I adapt a book for him? And I said, sure. And the book was Jurassic Park. And I read the book, and there are two things that happened. One... I didn't, I actually didn't like the book. I liked the idea, but I didn't really like the book. And I knew that he loved the kids in it and the kids for me. And listen, I have three kids. I love kids. I hated the kids in the book. And I found them annoying and I just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a very clear idea about it. And to be honest, I was so focused on staying with Malice that, um, I just, I decided not to do it. And they're shocked that this writer said no to him. <laughs> And then only a month later was I fired off Malice anyway. So over the years, he came back to me to rewrite films, and I'd rewritten something for him ahead of Minority Report. And he asked 
you know, would I look at it? And it was originally just going to be a rewrite. It was, there was a whole script and it took place in the future that looked like the fifties. So everyone feels safe. It was a totally different story. Um, Tom Cruise was attached and it was kind of an action movie, pretty much straight up. And so he asked, would I rewrite it? And I was in the process of, I had two projects. I was very close to actually three. I was, I had just done a draft of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for Gary Ross to direct. I was adapting a Pete Dexter book um, called Brotherly Love for Universal. And I also had the Lawrence Block novel, A Walk Among Tombstones, that I really wanted to direct, to write rather. And I hadn't started yet. So I had this other work, and I thought, I'll work for Stephen for a few weeks. I'll rewrite this movie, and that'll be that. Well, what happened was several things. One, Tom Cruise, who was supposed to star in Minority Report, was shooting Mission Impossible in Australia. And their schedule got postponed as they'd stopped production to work on the script. So all of a sudden, their start date was several months away. So all of a sudden, Stephen had all this time to work on Minority Report, and we decided to start over. And I had taken the job because it was a Steven Spielberg movie and it was going to be a rewrite and then I could move on. <laughs> and suddenly it became my life and Steven just calls up everyone I'm working for and says, I'm going to take him. <laughs> so I, all those other projects, I either had to leave in the case of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, and, the, um, and in the, you know, John August ended up writing it and Tim Burton directing it. And in the case of Brotherly Love, I just never did another draft on that. And Walk Among the Tombstones got postponed while I worked on Minority Report, which became a year of my life, just to start. And Stephen said to me, I don't like mysteries, I don't make mysteries, and you know, there's a lot of things we were talking about, and, and I wasn't sure, you know, I, I asked him, I said, well, what what is the movie for you? And he said, you know, I don't know. I like to direct screenwriters movies, which is what he said to me. And I understood what he meant by that. And, um, I said, okay. And so he didn't have a point of view. And he said, well, you know, what, you know, what would you do? And I realized I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't make this movie. It was a short story. It was a very flawed short story with a great idea. I think a lot of, this is blasphemy, but a lot of Philip K. Dick stories are great ideas, not always really well written. And the characters were kind of flat and boring, and it was, it was only, you know, a dozen pages or so. And in the end, the guy, the lead, worked for the army, and he was defending this ridiculous Nazi-like system, and sacrifices himself and so on and so forth. And the script that we had hadn't worked. I wasn't really sure what to what to do. Um and so I I thought to myself, well I would do something much darker than this and I if you know and I would think about the guy who would be in charge of this would have to be flawed and have his own demons and so on and possibly addicted to a certain drug and, you know, maybe he lost a child and, you know, he was communicating with his dead child through this drug, blah, 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 blah. I said, I'm going to write 30 pages, get fired and move on to my other projects. And there was also, I realized as I was writing, I didn't only have one mystery, I had two mysteries. And after that, I'm naming the precogs after, you know, famous mystery writers. And so I thought Stephen is really going to get upset with me. And so he read the first 30 pages and he said to me, keep going. I don't want to give you any notes. This is the way I see the movie now. Go ahead. <laughs> and at the same time, there was one other thing we had done that really helped me is right before I started writing together, I asked him if we could watch The French Connection. And we watched that together because Stephen had said, I don't know. I don't see any images for this movie yet. 
And so we watched The French Connection, and that became this idea of this kind of gritty cop movie, but just move it up a few years. You know, it's obviously a different plot and different different morality at work there. But again, sort of gray area of the good guy being the bad guy and so on. And it shot a kind of documentary style and, and so on. We also had a think tank where we brought in all these futurists and um, in Santa Monica, and you know, I got a lot of information. The big thing that stayed with me was that the most precious commodity in the future would be your privacy. And lo and behold, we see that happening right now. And this was back in 2000. You know, I had all this stuff and all this research, and now I had to write it, and it was enormously complicated. I tend to get what I would call diarrhea of the plot. And so there was a lot of plot going on and it was increasingly more and more complicated in terms of the story and because of the kind of physics of it and all of that. And we kept working. And, um, at a certain point, you know, it was, it was a very long script. It was 180 pages or something like that at, at this point. And, and I, I, you know, I, I, wasn't sure what was going to happen. And Stephen and I both late in the summer of that year, we'd started in the beginning of the year, maybe late in the summer, we both kind of ran out of gas a little bit. And we thought, maybe, let's just give it up. Maybe there, this isn't, you know, we can't fix this. He gave the script to Tom, because he had to. Tom was his partner. And, and Tom read the script and said, uh, you know, I love this. Let's do this. It made me cry. <laughs> so now we had to figure it out. But what happened from that point on is whenever I, I remember one day I came into the office to work with Stephen on the script and he said to me, you know, he started describing a scene where these guys are in the water on jet skis or something. I don't remember what it was. And they're driving around. I'm thinking, wait, that's not in the script. What's he talking about? And he was saying, no, no, this is for AI, a movie I'm writing. And I went, Oh, okay. And he said, so we're in a race, you and I, and whichever script, you know, gets done first is the script I'm going to direct. Now I'm standing there thinking, gee, who's going to win this race? <laughs> and also, you know, the, he's running with the checkered flag basically in his hand. So by the end of the year, he went off to go to AI, and I thought Minority Report was done. And we were both burned out on it. And even at one point, he brought in John August, who, you know, coincidentally also wrote Early in the Chocolate Factory after, to kind of do a cut down, straight up, action-y version of it. Um, and which I didn't really see, and he ended up not deciding to go that way. So I was in New York after he had finished shooting AI and was cutting AI, and I was in New York doing research for, because it was before I moved here, I now live here, but I was doing research on A Walk Among the Tombstones, and he called me and he said, listen, I am boarding and budgeting your 180-page draft of Minority Report. Let's go to work. It's your script. You have to do it. Because he had asked me to come back earlier, I think before AI, and I had said, no, I'm done. I don't know what to do. You go with God. At this point, he said, listen, I'm shooting your movie. Please come back. And I, you know, and I said, yes, yes. And so we began working on it. And we were rewriting up until, you know, maybe into even a month into production, we were solving problems. And, it, you know, it, it took a while. We finally figured it out. And so that was, you know, that was a it was a very long, difficult, difficult process. What I thought would be a couple of weeks became, you know, a year and a half. Did you go back? I know you said that you read the short story. Did you go back and look at any of the other drafts that were beforehand? Because I know that they had talked about making a version of Minority Report as a sequel to Total Recall. 
Yes, that career gets ugly head, sadly, in a credit dispute. I did look at that script, but it was had nothing to do with what we were doing. And there was a chase in it in a car factory that Stephen liked. And he said, oh, I like that idea. Let's do something like that, where they build a car around him. And Stephen did it. And those writers wanted credit for the whole script. And he dropped in that, he just dropped in that chase. And I kept arguing, I think we have two chases in a row here. Are you sure? But he did it and it was, it's actually very cool, but, but it has nothing to do. You could pull it out and the movie's the same. And then there was, um, John Cohen who had written the draft I was originally supposed to rewrite. And so in the credit arbitration, I argued that John and I should share credit, even though I wrote a new movie. His structure, there was something interesting in his structure where in the mid, in midway through it, he broke her out of, of pre-crime. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. And that's a big enough idea. And to warrant, you know, sharing something with him, even though I created the whole story, I, I didn't feel good about, about, you know, icing him out because I was definitely influenced by what had come before. And even if it was to not go in that direction, and I definitely organized around that sort of structure, but those guys desperately wanted credit on the movie. And so I'm looking at their script and there's, there's nothing in it that has anything to do with anything. It, it was, it was option simply because it was supposed to be a sequel to Total Recall. And the, at the end, I think Mars and Earth, like, like collide or something. It's a totally different movie. Uh, so yeah, I did look at that, and um, but we didn't not necessarily to to solve any problems. Over the years, you have done a lot of different genres, and I'm curious how it was working more in the sci-fi genre for this one. Well, here's the thing: I didn't know a lot about sci-fi when I took on the job. I mean, the only sci-fi novel I'd ever read was maybe Dune. Um, or a wrinkle of time as a kid, but I didn't really know the genre. I wasn't, um, wasn't that I didn't like it. I just wasn't a freak for it the way many people are. And subsequently, as I got into it, just to sort of get my head into an order report, I really discovered there's a lot of great science fiction out there. And, but I was not, and, and Stephen smartly told me at the beginning of the process, don't think about the future when you write this. Write this like it's happening right now. If somebody picks up a phone, just say they pick up a phone. Don't try and worry about any of that stuff. And we gradually began after the think tank and so on to layer certain, you know, futuristic ideas into it. Um, but for me, um, the, the, the notion of free will and being arrested for a crime haven't you yet to commit was enough. That was a lot right there. And you could explore that. And, and the future was merely the excuse for it being around. It was far enough in the future that you would believe it might be something that would happen. It wasn't about that future world, if you understand. And the, the, the ideas about justice and good and bad and so on are universal in whatever period you're writing in. We just needed the future to pull us far enough so that we could get away with a lot of what we had to get away with. You said that your original draft or the the draft that uh, Spielberg was budgeting was 180 pages, so three hours. The movie is not three hours, it's over two, but I'm curious what ended up getting cut. The script is, the shooting script is, I don't know, 160, 50 something. There, it's, it's not in a screenplay format. I believe it's in a Microsoft Word format, if I'm not mistaken, and it's cheated. I totally cheat the margins, I cheat everything. So it's probably still a good 180 pages. There were a lot of things that were cut out, but not, 
nothing significant, no plots, no, you know, I don't really, I don't really remember what didn't make it, to be honest. And usually I do because I'll be, oh, there's this great sequence that we lost, you know, and get shorty or an out of sight or, you know, look out or whatever, you know, I'm thinking about all these, these things that didn't make it. Not in this one. I don't remember. You know, and and so I don't. I honestly couldn't couldn't say. How closely did you work with him after it started shooting? Well, I would be there a lot initially because there was a lot to watch. And normally, I'm I'm not big on being on the set of a movie I'm not directing because it's just so boring. But his sets are the opposite of boring, especially Minority Report. There's so many interesting things going on everywhere that it was really just fascinating. I'd love to be there, but eventually they moved east. They went to Baltimore and D.C. and so on, and I didn't go with them. And I could have, but I just had so much work to do. But we we would collaborate pretty closely, but the script was essentially done at that point. You know, he was he was shooting the script, and God bless him as a writer. He doesn't change a lot. If anything, he adds a lot. Um, and so like the chase stuff, he'll say, listen, I want to drop in something here. I want to have a jetpack sequence and, you know, here's the storyboards. Like, for example, one thing we did is he got me, he sat me down with a storyboard artist and he said, I want to do something in the, sh- in the shopping mall where we're shooting. And so I went over there and I looked at it and I ended up writing in detail and then talking it out with the storyboard artist, the sequence with the umbrellas and where she's she's leading him through the mall. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah. And it was really fun to write. And I did it because of production, and there were certain realities of production. And so I went there, and I could actually write the sequence. I came up with this whole thing that he could he then did, and it's amazing the way he shot that. Alex, the production designer, also told me what he was thinking, would show me what he's thinking about for pre-crime and the, the kind of baths they're going to be in. And so that enabled me to think about, you know, I could talk to him about what we would do in terms of, you know, how do they escape or what's it look like, so on. Did I read right? Did you do any shooting on Minority Report? I shot... There are these little commercials, these political ads in the background that, you know, are always saying pre-crime, it works. They're like these dumb political propaganda ads. I shot those. You said a little bit as far as how you came to direct the lookout that everybody else had to kind of eventually leave the project just because it took so long. But you have worked with so many great directors over the years. It must have been a little intimidating to step up into the director's chair. Well, I don't think it was intimidating so much as I was very comfortable not directing. And I really thought I would direct from the very beginning. I wanted to direct Little Man Pate. But, you know, Jody had her own vision, and then I was working with Ken Verona, and I kept working with really fun, interesting directors, and I was quite happy. And I also had kids, and I... It's complicated when you're directing, you're gone a lot, and I didn't want to be gone a lot. I liked the kind of rhythm of my writing life, and there are all sorts of things. And then, with The Lookout, I realized it was about 2005, I was bored. I was bored with myself. I just wanted a different creative experience. And there's a great quote by John Gregory Dunn, who says, just wanting to be a screenwriter is like just wanting to be a co-pilot. And interestingly enough, my dad he was a Pan Am pilot. <laughs> and so I hit home in an interesting way. And I thought, oh, and I just realized that I, it's not going to be enough. And, and other people write books, and I want to do that too. But I just thought, I think I need to do this. And my wife said, quit hiding behind the kids. If you want to go direct, go direct. 
I did it not because I felt like my work had been ruined or compromised in any way. And, and listen, I have beef, you know, beef with everything that other directors have done, but I respect the movies they've made for the most part. I really do. But I just wanted my own, a different creative experience. I just wanted to try a different process on things, test myself. And so we had gone through Sam Mendes and then David Fincher and Leonardo DiCaprio were going to do it. And that fell apart. And I was supposed to meet with Michael Mann and talk him into doing it. And I found myself sitting there talking him out of it because I really wanted to do it myself. And so that's what happened. You couldn't really have gotten much better of a group of actors. I mean, Jeff Daniels and Joseph Gordon-Levitt are terrific in that movie. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And taught me a lot about working with actors, both of them, both very different, but really a lot of great, great guys, too. Just really Nyla Fisher, everybody on that movie, were, they were all just lovely. I was really lucky. And um, it, was a, it was a very good experience. It was cold, the, the, the physical production itself. It was up in Winnipeg in the dead of winter at night outside. It was miserable, just miserable. But it was still, um, it was a great experience. And, and I learned a lot from it. It kind of reminds me of something like, uh, like the Ice Harvest, where it's like a Midwestern noir. That's so funny you said that because Harold was a dear friend of mine. And when he made Ice Harvest, I said, who shot this? And he said, oh, this guy named Alar Cavillo and Alar shot the lookout. Because I'd seen the Ice Harvest and I thought, oh, this is exactly the look I want. <laughs> and it was so different for Harold. It was actually a beautiful, really beautiful movie. Usually he didn't care as much. And that movie had a very strong look and palette and so on. And so I, I asked him and, and he said, yeah, Alar Cavillo. And I ended up using Alar on the lookout. <laughs> So what was your experience finally directing your first feature? I wasn't as calm as I would like to be as I am now because I was just so worried about looking like I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't learn the lesson until late in the day. No, it's okay to not know what you're doing. You have all these people that are going to help you do it. (laughs) You just have to know what you want. And I did know what I want. And I also was so used to being a collaborative people pleaser as a writer, you know, and a lot of jobs, you know, were to make people happy that I would sacrifice my own ideas sometimes, sometimes on the altar of experience, but sometimes just because. Um, And so it was a very interesting experience for me that way. And I learned a lot and I learned that, um, also, there was I, I'm very into prepping. I spent a long time prepping, and on that movie, I I I figured out subsequently after that what I didn't prep. I, there were things I never thought I needed to prep that I did, and so it's it's just experience, and I and I I learned a ton and just about how to shoot and how to you know which I didn't do as much on the lookout, but to have real rules for yourself. I remember Steven Soderbergh telling me. What are the rules for yourself? You can't treat every movie like every scene like its own movie. What are the rules? What lenses are you going to use? What, you know, can you watch it with the sound off and follow the story? What are you doing? What are your rules? Um, and later on, A Walk Among the Tombstones, he really began to reinforce that with me when I directed that because I would, I really wanted to do a very simple 70s style, but I was worried people wouldn't let me, so I would cover it as well. And then I would use the coverage in the cutting room, and he would say, what are you doing? It's insecure cutting. You need to pull all that out and stay true to your the rules you have for yourself. And listen, you have these rules. Sometimes you get in the cutting room and your rules fuck you here and there. But at the same time, there's a cohesive way to look at it. So that was a big thing for me. Seems like Steven Soderbergh would be a really good collaborative partner on stuff. 
Yes. And as much as Lynn taught me how to write, he taught me how to direct. And because the, the or at least a lot of it in terms of, of the visual language. And I thought I understood it because I write visually and I watch movies, but I really, I was making it too hard for myself. There was too much look mom directing. And I, it wasn't natural for me. And when I asked, you know, in a walk among the tombstones after that, I did this pilot that, that, um, didn't end up getting picked up, but I really was very rigorous about following my own rules and it was great. It came out really good. And on Godless, I really chased that idea and it made it a lot easier for me. Um, listen, there are times where you, you wish you had done this or done that, but at least the decision making is no, we're not using that lens or we're not doing it that way. Or, and I had already understood composition and, and color palette and all of that. But I wasn't I wasn't necessarily secure enough to just say, no, you don't need this is the idea you have. Shoot that idea and don't shoot anything else. And it worked out great on on the last one. And we'll see how it goes on the next one. (laughs) That pilot that you shot for Hoke, were you a big Charles Williford fan before that? A giant Charles Williford. Oh, nice. The people at FX who I loved and love and are great people, I think it's very small. Those stories are very small stories, and they weren't wrong. I don't think, you know, they kept trying to figure out how to make it more about something, and Hoke is about Hoke. (laughs) You know, that's really it, and so it ended up not happening. I think they were worried that it was going to be they'd have a couple of shows that were kind of like that, that didn't work, and I think they were worried about it. And you know what? They're probably right. FX is probably not the right place for it at the time. It probably would have done better somewhere else. Is there any chance that there's going to be a, a, a screener of that leaked someplace? No, I don't think so, because the cut, the final cut of it isn't the cut I like. There was a cut before the one, before I'd cut everything. I, was, I started chasing the green light with them a little bit, and the movie got, and the pilot got worse uh, in terms of plot. And so I feel like it's missing so much stuff that was, that we had, there was one cut, the cut right before, which is not the one we ended up mixing and, and finishing, sadly. Sadly, sadly, sadly. I've been desperately searching for that one for years because I'm also a huge Charles Williford fan. Yeah. Did you ever read Grimhaven, the book you never got published? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wrote a big article about him years ago that I, I oh, like you did. One of the few <laughs> things I'm actually proud of writing. He's, He's something, and Larry Block, who's a, who is, knew him really well, and had visited him and wrote a great piece about him as well. Larry Block, Donald Westlake, all those guys, you know, they all, they all knew each other, and he was the one they revered, <laughs> interestingly enough. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was fantastic. And I can't imagine what Giamatti did with that role. He was so good. He was so, everybody, and it was good, and it was really off the wall, and um, and it was just it was really fun. But you know what? I I'm not sad because it it turned me into more of a director. I really learned so much on that, and it was funny after I finished it. I remember Steven Soderbergh saying to me, "Okay, now you're ready to do Godless. Now you can do that." When it came to Hoke, what did you choose to adapt? I mean, because there are the four and a half ish novels for that. I was going to do, for season one, I was doing New Hope for the Dead. Yeah, it was going to be that, with some invented stuff. I invented a whole story about a guy coming from Cuba on a boat lift and wreaking havoc in Miami as well, because it needed a little more. I mean, you could take some of 
Williford's other stuff and kind of recontextualize it, like the shark infested well, custard. Masterpiece, and, yeah, yeah, well, well, the masterpiece is um, the way we die now. And that would have been the final season for me. And I love that book so, so much. But, um, you know, there were, it, it was, it was tricky, but you, you, I had to create different, different, just sort of, you have to create a little bit more, pull out more because the books, you have fun just living in his brain. But on the show, you need a little bit more. And apparently I didn't give it enough more. <laughs> And apparently a lot of anal sex, for whatever reason, Williford loved Yeah, he's a little into that. He's definitely, and, and yes, he's love, he loves that, and he loves jacking off dogs and all kinds of things he's got going on. We shot that. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't necessarily a sci-fi fan before you started working on Minority Report. Were you a comic book fan before you started working on The Wolverine? No, I actually loathed those movies. I I thought they were killing the movie business. And Jim Mangold, who I love and is a pal, asked me would I take a look at Wolverine um, before he started directing it. And I said, I don't know anything about the rules. I don't think I've seen any X-Men movies start to finish. I think these movies are cheating. I think it's all about effects and so on. Who really gives a shit? And he said, well, just look at it. It's a character thing. I'm thinking about it as, you know, Josie Wales. Just take a look. And so I read the script and it didn't do much for me to, to in terms of changing my mind. But what did change my mind is he sent me a comic book. He sent me Old Man Logan, which I read. And it's basically an Eastwood as the Wolverine. <clears throat> and I loved it. I thought, this is bold. I love this. And so it got me thinking in the, in the original script, Wolverine loses his powers in the last, you know, five minutes and then he gets them back again. You know, you, you know, it's in the climax of the movie. And I thought, why not lose him in the first five minutes or the first 20 minutes and live with a guy who, if he, if it's a guy who has eternal life, if it's a guy who's had to watch everyone he loves die, then suddenly he gets what he wants. Wouldn't that be interesting if, if, and he's in Japan, which is really exotic, which I thought was really interesting, with a woman. And you could do this thing that would almost feel like witness, where it's this respite from all the violence in his life, only to have the violence come back. And Jim was on board, and we we really, half that movie I'm really proud of. And then half the movie, the head of the studio at the time, who left, thankfully, before we did um, Logan, and who also, I would say, was partly responsible for the ending of Minority Report, which I had a big problem with, but we'll get to that. With Wolverine, it just, all of a sudden, we have giant robots and bullshit again. And not what I thought was was interesting in, in terms of what we were chasing in the first half of the movie. And the movie got cut down in order to sort of bring into relief all the action stuff, and they added a bullet train chase and blah, blah, blah. So I didn't really, that experience, and for me, the movie, I thought, you know, part of it was good and part of it was not so good. And so years later, I'm in New York, and I'm working on a novel in this place called The Writer's Room here in New York City. It's just a little place where writers go and you grab a desk. And you couldn't talk on the phone there. But Jim was constantly calling me because he was working on a sequel to the Wolverine movie. And I thought, why? Why? <laughs> and he said, no, I want to do another one. And I said, okay. And he 
you know, he wrote a treatment, which he showed me and I said, okay, whatever, it's fine. And, and, but it still had all the X and bullshit in it and striker and all these guys name. I don't know who they are. I just know they're in the story and all these various people. And then he had one script written that felt very much like an old school X-Men movie with him. And then another script written after that, which ended with, which began with him being some sort of fighter or something. I don't remember him being some, I don't know. He's hired to kill some general in South America and it ends with him having to kill the vice president. The usual bullshit. And I said to Jim, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> Who gives a fuck? <laughs> I mean, really? Who, why, with, it's, it's the same, it's the same thing again. I said, why, why, why do a Marvel movie at all? Um, there's a much better character there. And he agreed because he had been the one saying all along, listen, I don't want to sell toys or happy meals and so on. But this, the movie hadn't quite got there. And he kept pulling me out of the writer's room to talk about it. And I said, I can't help you. I can't help you. I'm writing a novel right now. And so I finished the book and he said, listen, we'll do it together. And actually, I said, we have to do it together because I'm not doing it by myself. You can do it with me. And I said, let's just see if it's even doable. And I said, it can't be this. It can't be that. And I get very heated. And he just laughs whenever I get heated, which is the exact right response. Um, I said, listen, I've always wanted to do a James Bond movie that opens in a, you know, a little pub in Scotland. And he's drunk out of his mind. And, and he gets the shit kicked out of him by a bunch of soccer hooligans. <laughs> Instead of some giant set piece. I've always wanted to do that. And, and I said, I think we should open this movie that way. And he said, we'll try it and see what you see what you think. And this is where it gets even more obnoxious than I've already been. So he said, try that scene, write that scene. So I write the scene, but two pages into the scene, I'm so mad that I said, yes, I would do this. I'm so angry. I write this three paragraph manifesto that's still in the script. And it basically says what the movie will not be. <laughs> And, um, and it's, it's basically saying, if you're expecting this or that, it ain't going to happen. People are going to die. If they fall out of a building, they're going to die. If they get hit by a car, they're going to die. This isn't, you know, on and on and on. Wolverine isn't in good shape and, you know, all this stuff. And then I went on with the scene and he read the scene and it made him laugh. And he was, he said, keep going, let's go. So I ended up doing it with him and we had to do it very quickly because he had a start date and I actually was getting ready to do Godless. So we wrote the script and I forgot about it. And there was a time we were both in New Mexico because they were shooting all over the country and I was shooting Godless and Santa Fe and there was a time when he was there when I was there and we never saw each other. So I didn't, you know, I didn't really talk to him at the end of the year. Um, in my cutting room, he says, we just tested. Look, cause I had just started to cut and he was just finishing his cut because I shot, you know, for a hundred, I shot seven hours. So I said, really? He goes, yeah, we just tested it. I tested through the roof. And I said, that's impossible. He said, no, it tested through the roof. Um, he said, I'm going to show it to you. So he sent me a link to the movie, and I watched the movie on my laptop in my office in the editing room, and I was riveted. First of all, he did a spectacular job. He did an amazing job. He fully committed to that movie, and Jim got 
and Jim got Hugh to commit to because Hugh, we had some meetings with Hugh here in New York. He he was willing to do it, and it's because of him the movie got made. Let's let's face it, he was willing to cut because the studio also had a new studio head, and Emma Watts was also very much who, who had been under the other studio head that kind of destroyed Wolverine, very much wanted to ride the ship on this one. So she was committed. Everybody was committed, but Jim. It was amazing. He really delivered. I was blown away by how well, how well it, how, just how good it looked, how well told the story was. And I really, you know, I, I was really impressed. And I couldn't believe it because I hate those movies. And I watched this and I thought, wow, this, this came out really good. <laughs> and I'm so glad that he ignored me. But he also, what kept us going at a certain point in the middle of it is he watched Shane. And it's funny because I'm, we're both Western aficionados, but he's the one who really thought about Shane as, 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 a, as the beating heart of this movie. And he was right, you know, because I was thinking it's just a, you know, a super violent paper moon. And he, you know, and the whole Shane thing for me began, to, it all came together in my brain that way. But Jim, and I love collaborating with him. I'm writing something for him to direct now. He's, he's, it's a ball, you know, and, um, he he did a great job. And I think if somebody else had directed it, they might've focused on the wrong things. And he didn't, and he went for it, and it's brutal in an unflinching way that makes violence not fun. And and I think that that was, I think it's a real achievement. I'm really, I'm proud of the movie for what we did, but I'm really proud of him for what he did. You were saying that that same studio had affected the end of Minority Report? Right now, the movie ends where you see all the, the, the there's basically this, this, uh, it's a crawl, I think, where basically it says, you know, the pre-crime system was dismantled. Um, the the you know precogs were um, were remanded to an island where they'd be safe from their gifts. All the prisoners that were released were kept on a careful watch, um, and so on and so forth. I don't remember what it all was. And in the script, it said all of that, but it said, you know, the pre-crime system was dismantled and you kind of saw it desolate, the offices and all the kind of wiring and everything hanging there like an abandoned office. The prisoners were released, but kept a close eye on them. And then you say the precogs were remanded to a place where they'd be free of their, you know, safe from, you know, having to see murder all the time. And the only place in the whole world in my script where you could have that happen were on these islands in the North Sea that looked awful. There are these rocky, craggy, horrible places, and they're in this shed. One of them is trying to till the earth to grow something, but you can't really. And she is looking at a picture of her mother, the only picture she has, which is the image of her mother dying over and over. It was just a dark thing. And then it said, the prisoners were released, the whole thing. And then the last line as you fade to black was the following year there were 137 homicides in the state of D.C. And Tom Rothman said that that was just too cynical. And so now we have images of him with his pregnant wife and them on an island which is really bucolic and it's all, and already Stephen, you know, he, he, he he's so he can work on nine movies at once. And so when he got to the end of Minority Report because he doesn't have to test it or do anything, he kind of was already on to whatever came next. It was either Catch Me If You Can or Terminal. And he was on to one of those other movies. And so the last part of the movie, where it should have ramped up, it kind of just sort of peters out. 
And, you know, the image of, of the woman getting uh, Anne Lively, I think her name is getting murdered, all that stuff. It's, it's not that, it's not that visceral the way the rest of the movie is. You have that great scene with the guy, Leo Crow, who may or may not have killed his son, and then you realize it's all a fake, and then the movie kind of just slowly winds down after that instead of amping, amping up. And at one point, Stephen said, you know, why don't you go in the cutting room with Michael Kahn and maybe you can tweak that. And I'm like, what? And you can imagine how excited Michael Kahn would be to have me in the cutting room with him. And so, so it just kind of ended the way it ended. And, and it's still, it's still one of my favorite experiences ever. And I would do anything for Steven, but I, the ending of the movie, it's a little bit of a fumble, um, you know, on the one yard line. Uh, so it's just a little bit at the very end and it doesn't matter. I don't think in the end it's not fatal, but it's just, it's not quite as, 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 as impactful as, as the rest of it. And I think Tom really got him to, he also wanted him to be PG. Tom got him to turn into a PG-13 movie instead of an R-rated, his whole drug use and the way he sees his son, he would cobble together these images and they would jump in time and he would be, he would be talking to him, you know, he'd be creating a fake version of his son in a hologram. It was sick and it's all very kind of wistful now. And, and I think, you know, Stephen, you know, he, 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 he pulled his punches. It's the opposite of what happened with Logan. He pulled all the punches because it was originally a real, it was an R rated science fiction piece. It was Robocop, you know, it was the French connection in the future and it became, you know, and so I think Tom encouraged him to add the chase sequences and all the other stuff, same way encouraged the bullet train and the Wolverine and so on. We talked a little bit about one of my favorite Florida writers, Charles Williford, but you've also been involved with another one of my favorite Florida writers, which is uh, John D. McDonald. I've been following this Deep Blue Goodbye project for over a decade, I think. Yeah. <laughs> what was your involvement with this? Um, well, I wrote a script, a couple of scripts for it. A lot of us have tried to write scripts for it. Dennis Lehane wrote quite a good one. Um, a lot of people over the years have tried to adapt that series. I came to the conclusion <laughs> that unless you do it A in period and do it B for television, it's not worth it. It's so his writing is so of its time. His philosophy, um, uh, you know, Travis McGee's philosophy, everything is so of the sixties. Um, it just doesn't fly now. He's such an anachronism that to transplant it, you just end up with like a, a private eye TV show. But if you did a really interesting series where you could, you could go deeper, but keep it in the period, I think that would be the interesting way to go. Cause I don't think I solved it with my script and I think it was, it was almost made until, um, Christian Bale hurt himself. Um, he was going to play Travis for a while. And Mangold was directing and they had a cast and so on. And it was, it was looking really good. But, but at the same time, I, I'm kind of glad because I don't think it quite delivers. I don't think it delivers the same way. You're not going to feel the way you did when you first read those books in the cities or came to them as books. And reading them as a book is knowing that they're in, in the past is a different experience than the investment you make for a movie. I also read that you're uh, working on a script for No Exit. Now, that's not Jean-Paul Sartre, is it? No, no, it's a it's a thriller. I'm not writing the script. I'm just a producer. 
that's a, a whole other thing. I, I'm I'm producing a couple of things at um, at Fox, and it's just it's a great thriller novel that was written. And I'm forgetting everybody's name now, um, but it's a really good thriller novel that takes place at a rest stop in the middle of a blizzard, um, and it's it's uh, it's pretty great. That's fantastic. When you write or when you're working on these projects, are, are you working on multiple things or do you have to pretty much focus on one thing at a time? Well, right now I'm working on multiple things. I'm adapting the um, um, Don Winslow novel, The Force for Jim, for Mangold. Um, and I'm also adapting the old Walter Tevis novel, The Queen's Gambit, for me to do as another miniseries at Netflix. And I'm doing them both at the same time, and it's it's not easy or fun. So um, I don't I don't like to do it, but sometimes the timing of everything is you know, and you have to you have to act, or because if you postpone something that wants to happen, it just never happens. Yeah, what was that experience like doing Godless at Netflix? Great, maybe the best experience I've ever had doing anything, and that's in a 34 year career. Yeah, I've talked with other people that have worked with Netflix and just doing television, long form television or a series like that. You know, people say, oh, it's the writer's medium, but for you, you being a writer director, that must really work well for you. It works great and they're more willing to try things and they, you know, they don't interfere that much and they definitely have an opinion and they're very smart. Um, but they, they really, they're, 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 what they'll take on is, is a, it's just a wider band than what's happening out there. And they're not, and if you want to make a movie these days, it's got to be a superhero movie or a, a broad comedy with teenagers, whatever it is that gets young kids into the theater, because they're pretty much the only ones going with any sort of regularity. Whereas on television now, there's, you know, you can see great stories being told. I mean, I think the best movie last year was Babylon Berlin. That series was spectacular. Well, Mr. Frank, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. My pleasure. I hope I didn't yammer on too long, um, but really enjoyed it. It was a great chat. We are back, and we were talking about Minority Report. So, yeah, you guys have done a ton of research on this. I'm so happy to be able to talk to people that actually have pre-read all the material. This is great. Oh, I loved all of the material that we're given. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. I'm studying. <laughs> it was fascinating to see how the story evolves from script to script and finally makes it onto the screen. Yeah. Yes. The evolution was very interesting. <laughs> I was not impressed with some of the early drafts. I think I busted through the Total Recall 2 in, what, an hour and a half, maybe? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I read it in real time. <laughs> I just cannot see Arnold Schwarzenegger being John Anderton. He oh. was so eloquent, and that's not Schwarzenegger at all. In fact, I spent most of my time reading his parts out loud in the Arnold voice. It, it Yeah, it got pretty bad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they gave him way too much dialogue. Do not do that. Too many words. Arnold cannot talk about causality. It does not work. 
And then what the hell? Richter shows up again? What the fuck? Only to be killed yet again, which makes me wonder if there's going to be a third film in which Richter will come back with missing two arms and a hole in his chest. It'll just be the head. Just the head on like a block of machinery or something. Yeah, we didn't even get a fight scene where he's using the arms to beat the shit out of Quaid or anything. No, just here I am. It's like I can see how, oh, we have mutants. The precogs are mutants. We can make this the sequel. That might make sense, but... Otherwise, and that is really a beautiful idea. Fit. Yeah, but the execution isn't there at all. That he suddenly becomes so like he's the savior of Mars in the first movie in Total Recall, but then that he becomes the head of the pre-crime unit. It's like where does this come from? That's a huge leap that makes no sense. They throw in a line of dialogue how it seemed to be like a PR move, but it just it doesn't wash at all. I would have bought Quaid becoming a politician against his will. And being involved in pre-crime from that standpoint, but definitely not as a detective. Well, there's such a, you know, haves and have-nots when it comes to Total Recall and the whole idea of the mutants versus the regular people and that they're kept in this ghetto and all of these things. And yeah, that's really, it's not necessarily addressed the way that it should be in this one. And you're right, like, maybe he is forced into politics and does he become the pro-mutant candidate or something, but... No. And they, the way that they use mutants in this movie, like the, the first criminal is a mutant who's almost like a, 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 an ape man. It's like, okay, that's cool, I guess, but it seems to go against what Quaid's about now. And he did try, the, the mutant did try to address that with, yo, you're coming after me because I'm a mutant. And that's the only time we see, really, that the mutants are still marginalized. Yeah, the politics of that story were so confusing with the North Block and South Block. I mean, in the original one, it's Mars wants independence. They're being, you know, um, harshly ruled by Cohagen. Nice and straightforward. With this one, I'm like, all right, they're the bad. Oh, no, they're the bad guys. Okay, no, they're the bad guys. And they didn't even really make use of the, the actual pre-crime, pre-cognitive idea very much. There's Quaid gets accused and then they shut off the precogs to prevent anyone seeing this, this big plan that they have. And that's it. Yeah, the, the, the precogs did not factor in in a way I was hoping because, you know, it's total recall. We have the mutants. We already know that some of them have psychic ability from the first film, but then we don't experience anything with them at all. And they didn't even bring back Tony from the first movie. I love Tony. Yeah, and Tony survives at least. Yes, he does. Also, we're going to have a moon crash into another moon to prevent it from crashing into Mars, but one of those moons is housing how many pre-crime prisoners what (laughs) i wonder if that came from arnold going i I shot the big gun now i want to shoot a moon at something (laughs) make it happen Uh, it's interesting though that there are little things that will translate from this script into later scripts so the whole idea of these mutant flies that can sniff out where quaid is at it's like okay well that becomes more the spiders later on yeah but that's really about it. I, I, what you're saying about the North Block and the South Block, it's like, take all of the bad ideas from this script and put them in the 2012 remake of Total Recall. Oh, God. Which actually takes out of out the mutants, so the plot doesn't even make sense in that movie. <sighs> but no, instead we've got Brian Cranston just chewing up scenery in the few scenes that he's in. Yeah. Oh, boy, that movie was a mess. Yes, it was. The only thing I'll give them credit for was turning Kate Beckinsale into the villain, which I didn't see coming. I thought that was kind of cool, but otherwise, no good. Oh, and we do have the the auto factory scene. Not an action scene. He just hides in an auto factory for a second. Yeah, I I, I know there's some um, 
issues about rights to the script because of that, but I can't, I don't see any resemblance at all to either of those scenes. I wonder if I read that no. section too quickly. No, you didn't. It's because I was looking for it because I wanted to see if that was, you know, that that same action scene. But nope. Yeah, because Scott Frank says in the interview, he's like, oh, yeah, I read it in the John Cohen script, the whole auto building yeah. scene. And I was like, OK, but yeah, that seems to be kind of in that earlier draft as well. The the Goldman, Shushit and um, Gothel's version of it. Yeah. I mean, if anything, the Cohen script has great chunks of dialogue taken right out of it and put into the Frank script so it would have made more sense i don't know if they got co-credited on that they, they did they did they did deserved absolutely also, deserved also he's the first to make the precogs into actual characters that in mm-hmm. the total recall script in the original story even they're just these mutated things hooked to machines and to actually give agatha a voice uh, who and a character who wants things who wants to protect her siblings that's something although the the cohen script went a little too far with agatha's language again um you know, speaking of Schwarzenegger's supposed lines, she was far too eloquent and aware of her position in a way that I don't buy. Like a precog who had basically been living in the future for her entire life in near seclusion. I don't believe she would understand the politics of what had been going on with her. As opposed to the finished film where she's like, is this now? Is oh, this really I love happening? that line. That's Oh, it's so heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. The way that she is afraid of the world um, when he brings her out into it. I was just like, okay, this this is right. This is the way it should be acted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like Samantha Morton a lot in her role as Agatha. Um, she was, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie uh, Code 46. I never made my way all the way through it, but I remember it having a lot of good ideas, and I remember it having her and Tim Robbins, and it's one that I actually need to go back and revisit. It's not one I've seen. I meant to check it out. I've never gotten to it. Uh, we've been really enjoying her on The Walking Dead this yes. past season, where she's one of the villains. She's terrifying on that show. She hides her accent really very well. She does, and yeah. I remember her being great in In America as well. I found it interesting that I can't remember where I read them credited as this, but the, obviously her last name, I think it's in the movie. Her last name is credited as Lively, that she is the daughter of Anne Lively. But the, the two brothers, Dashiell and uh, Arthur, are credited as Arkadin as their last name. And I know that that's got to be somebody, probably Spielberg, being such a fan of Wells and you know using Mr. Arkadin as the last name. Watching the film, I kind of got the sense maybe they're all related, that they were like triplets or something. But it's interesting to see that, that these two are separate from her. Yeah, I would have thought that Anne Lively had had, if not triplets, at least to have the twins and then her, you know, at a later date. But yeah, okay. I guess they just got lucky that they all work well together. I guess so. I I know they did talk about, um, at least Iris talked about how there had been children who passed from all of the treatments they were giving them. So these three were just the survivors who are showing ability. It is very convenient that their abilities complement each other as well as they do. Well, that's the magic of movies. Well, and maybe since they form a hive mind, maybe growing up together, they all sort of found the right rhythm yeah. for their minds to work and function perfectly that way. Yeah, I've got to wonder what it's like at that cottage at the end. You know, are they always finishing each other's sandwiches or what? Oh. <laughs> what are we having for dinner? Oh, you know what we're having for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Game of cards must be really damn boring with them. <laughs> we're having Chinese food, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
we we did have a chance to see the first episode of the TV show Minority Report. Uh, better production value than I expected. They they really seem to have put money into it. Yeah, I was surprised. I actually didn't dislike the show, though. As I was describing it to someone, I found myself going, "Well, it's like this show, and it's like this show, and it's like this show, and it's like this show," and I just kept rattling off shows where it is. A woman and a man and a scientist or two partners and a scientist. So we've got Danny, the caretaker out here again. And then we've got, uh, or sorry, Wally, the caretaker. And then we've got the, now we've, we've gender swapped. So it is the black female cop. And then it is Dash who's escaped or, you know, now he's not part of the, uh, the, the triplets anymore, the, the three precogs and those two out solving crimes and then being helped by Danny who can, uh, sorry, Wally who can read the, uh, visions. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, this is very similar to this show and this show and this show. And I'm just like naming off like, well, you remember that show with Sawyer from Lost where yeah. it was him and, uh, <laughs> Catherine from CSI. And then it was this guy who kind of looks like Neelix, but it's it's not Neelix from uh, Star Trek. So, yeah, it's like that show. And it's kind of like Perception. And it's kind of like uh, – and I was like, oh, God. Yeah, no wonder this f- show failed because there were too many of them. It's a procedural with a little spin on it. And actually reminded me a lot of Numbers, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of police procedurals where it's the tough female cop. And then the guy who's not a cop but has an ability or has some insight. I mean, Castle. Castle. Uh, yeah. Right, yeah. All these shows. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's kind of the same thing. I did appreciate – we only saw the first episode, but this idea of you can see some of the long-term plot arcs they seem to be setting up. But I almost thought this would have been better as maybe something on Netflix where it is much more seri- uh, kind of a serial plot, not like each episode, okay, here's the criminal we're going after this week, but just one long-form story. I did like that it actually takes place in the universe of the movie, though. It's not like a, a retelling of it that it's, it is a literal sequel. That's kind of neat. Ideas like that all the people who had been haloed had this horrible neural damage that uh, they didn't foresee. I thought that was a fascinating plot development. Things like that where you could see they could have taken this into a lot of interesting directions. It seems like Agatha's going to be the bad guy. Is that how you guys are seeing this? I think she's definitely going to be an antagonist for what seems like good reasons. She doesn't want to be recaptured. I'm not sure if she'll be... I mean, from what we saw, I, I don't think she would be the out-and-out out villain, but um, she's definitely working against our protagonist. According to Wikipedia, the end, because this was supposed to be 13 episodes, they cut it down to 10, so I don't know if they actually did you know, finish out what was supposed to be the first season's arc or not, because season, or sorry, episode 10, director Blomfeld has found the precogs. They end up in the milk bath again, as Agatha predicted, and buyers are on their way. Wally wants them to run. That's how the season and the series ends. Interesting. Oh, rough to end on a cliffhanger. That's always a bummer. Dark shadows. Oh, <laughs> from the eighties. I'm scarred forever. Carnival. Nice. Oh, yeah, that was the big one. Golden Years for me, the Stephen King show. I so wanted to keep seeing. They added an ending for video, but it was terrible. I can't recommend Minority Report, the TV show, but it was an interesting uh, appendix, let's call it. I didn't mind it. I expected a lot worse. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, after watching Total Recall 2070, and I was just like, okay, this really isn't 
anything to do with Total Recall. They should have called this Blade Runner something. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody had the rights to a name and just slapped it on there, yeah. But yeah, at least with this one, it's like, okay, yeah, I can see this. We've got the precogs back. I was very curious, you know, uh, are, are they going to make mention of Anderton at some point? You know, I mean, they can get Wally the caretaker back. I wonder if they'll get like Fletcher or somebody to come back, you know, because I know Fletcher, the guy that played him, he was on TV all the time for a while. Oh, I haven't seen him in a while. I like him. Yeah, I like him a lot. I And I like Tom Cruise's crew in this movie, like, you know, the, they, they, they all seem to have a part to play. And this whole idea of the one guy who's super creepy and just wants to punish Tom Cruise. I was like, okay, that's an interesting turn. Oh yeah. They, they never quite explain what that guy's deal is, but every time I see him in a movie, he plays that same type of thug. It's always the same thing. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what the guy's name is. Uh, he reminds me a lot of the the guy who uh, was Billy Bats in Con Air, who was also a really great uh, antagonist on the X-Files, who was trying to kill um, – well, of course he was, because she was the damsel in distress in almost every episode, but was try- trying to kill Gillian Anderson by putting her in uh, ice, I think it was. I don't think I saw that one. It was a long time ago, but yeah, he's he's got a great face, and this guy has a great face as well. I remember this guy from uh, that Bruce Willis movie, Last Man Standing, with a bad Irish accent threatening him before Bruce Willis puts a bunch of holes in him. That's that's the primary thing I remember him from, and I think he was a bad guy in Eraser too. I think one of James Caan's crew of thugs. He's good at that. I know Frank Grillo is in here, but I didn't recognize him. I think I saw him. I think he's one of the guys who halos Anderton in the house because I was looking for him. He's wearing a helmet, so it was tough to see. But I was looking for him because um, I felt like it almost feels like his his crossbones role from Captain America. It's like first he works on this and then he goes to work for Hydra and the rest is history. I could almost hear him saying that same thing he says to Steve Rogers, like, hey, hey take it easy, big fella. You know, <laughs> and you got Neil McDonough, who was in uh, the first Captain America. He's dumb, dumb Dugan. Oh, very good. Oh, yeah, exactly. I totally forgot that. And we never see those guys again. <laughs> we see that, like the, the grandson of one of them in one of the Spider-Man movies. That's about it. Yeah. He's like the principal of uh, Peter's High School, right? Yeah. You can even see the picture on the wall. It's a nice touch. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Megan Bloomfield may look like most girls. But she has a terrible problem. You don't even like to kiss me. We think you're a lesbian. So now they're sending her to a place. It's only for a few months. Rehab, honey. Uh, Homosexuals Anonymous. That won't take gay for an answer. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Looks like we got you just in time. I shouldn't even be here. You don't have any unnatural thoughts. I don't think it's unnatural. Aha! When you have inappropriate fantasies about girls, you shock yourself with this shock. That's sick. Feel the friendship. This is bull, Megan. It doesn't work. You are who you are. The only trick is not getting caught. He wants to be with you. Feel the love. To be inside you. Love muscle thrusting. Or better yet, just cop a feel. (sighs) Boys! Don't you see how sad and pathetic you all are? Okay, who wants to go down with me? I can't wait to be straight. (sighs) Natasha Leone. I'm not perverted. I get good grades. I go to church. I'm a cheerleader. Clay Duvall. I like girls a lot. 
Kathy Moriarty. What is it, Joe? What about foreplay? No, foreplay is for sissies. And RuPaul Charles. I myself was once a gay. But I'm a cheerleader. Because friends don't let friends be gay. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at But I'm a Cheerleader. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Tom and Corinne. I usually ask folks individually what you guys are up to, but you two are kind of more of a team dynamic. So what have you been working on lately? Uh, well, we have some new episodes coming up on uh, our website, www.cinemaspection.com, where you can listen to our podcast. We have a big one coming up on the original Godzilla, uh, just in time for the new movie. Quite excited for that. Uh, we have some big plans for what episodes we're going to cover during the summer. So how long have you guys been doing Cinemaspection? Tim created it, and I, I came into the picture or just at uh, Big Trouble in Little China, which I think was like episode 11. Um, more like eight or nine. We've been eight. at it for about five years. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. And uh, there's not usually much rhyme or reason to what movies we, we pick, but uh, we try to pick some of the interesting ones. Does uh, podcasting, uh, does that bring the couple closer together, or does that drive you two farther apart? We did this before mics were on, so <laughs> this is this is just us turning the mics on and letting it happen. The only time it threatens to drive us apart is when I make her watch James Bond movies. Oh, uh, fuck you, James Bond. <laughs> Every November... And there are a lot of James Bond films, so I have at least 20 years to look forward to this. Yeah, we still haven't gotten out of the Conneries yet. We're working our way through. Fun. Well, at least you've got Lazenby to look forward to. That's what I keep saying. You know, we just, we, we have actually You Only Live Twice is next, and right after that, Lazenby. Oh, but but you have to watch You Only Live Twice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and all the racism against Japanese people. Oh, oh man. And then Moonraker happens. <laughs> And Live and Let Die in between them. That's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> I am probably going to be 70 by the time we finish the James Bond films, and it'll probably be my life's work. <laughs> what does she have to show for it? She she talked about every single James Bond film. I watched them all a few years ago, and yeah, there are certain high points, but there's a lot of lows. Yeah, we just gotta we gotta make it to Daniel Craig and things will be okay. <laughs> well, I I mean for me there's Casino Royale and then there's the rest. I do love Casino Royale. I, I like Skyfall. I think Skyfall's good. I don't know. I think Skyfall only looks good in like a dead cat bounce kind of a way after Quantum of Solace. It's very pretty though. Sure. But in terms of bigger episodes that we have coming up, uh this October we're gonna have the shining. Yeah, which we've been talking about for I think three years, but it's such a massive undertaking. We we keep coming close to recording, like oh, it's so intimidating. We know that's going to be like a four hour recording yeah. at the very least, maybe a two parter. And uh, we're going to be doing uh, Quatermass in the Pit this summer with uh, Noel uh, Noel Thingval, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Very cool. He was just on the show about two episodes ago. Oh, I know he's great. Yeah, he is fantastic. I really enjoyed talking with him, and I've enjoyed talking with you guys. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. And I have to admit, I've been running late a lot lately. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.